0: Let's get back to it. That was a
1: little little side chat. That's funny. Okay, yeah. So, um, let's see. So, I think I'll let you count down and then we can like pop it off.
0: Okay. Oh, yeah. I can feel we're going to pop it off tonight. Okay. There we go. Okay let me put my, put my glasses on because I talk about it better with my glasses. Well, okay. no monocles. We <laughs> no, still, they're okay, coming. That,
1: uh, oh, oh, they're oh, coming. Oh, really?
0: Yeah, we're going to sell them at our merch store too.
1: Oh, we must invest. <laughs> I feel like then that's when we'll be like Monocle. at level 2.0. Oh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we both put them out at the same time.
1: Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we 100 <laughs> need this. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, that's coming. Don't worry. I've done some research. Okay.
2: All right. Five, four, three, two, one.
1: Hi, I'm Dr. Laura, and I'm Matthew, and this is We, we Change Our, our minds, minds Podcast. it's helpful before we get started, just as a friendly reminder that the materials and contents of this podcast are presented for educational and informational purposes only. So the materials and contents are not medical, psychological, legal or other professional advice and they're not intended to be substituted for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. So if you have any specific questions about your health or healthcare decisions, please seek the advice of a licensed healthcare professional.
3: It all sort of grew out of playing for free at the Panhandle.
4: Playing
3: for free, yeah. That's that. I mean, that, that was that was like the. I don't know that was like the basis really of everything we did. I mean, it wasn't so much playing gigs because there weren't that many gigs at the time. You know? So when we when we lived in San Francisco, we moved into San Francisco in '66. It was just the thing to do was to go down and play it, play it in the Panhandle. Run a run a, a chord. Find some power. Find some power. We actually ran a, ran the a court across Oak Street, plugged in, in some. I can't imagine what their electric bill must
1: be. That that was the, that
3: was that, that was the thing. There was somebody there living there who would volunteer their, their electricity, you know, and we <laughs> we couldn't afford generators, and, uh, and it all just it all just sort of grew out of that.
0: podcast
1: hey laura hey matthew i am so excited about this week's episode
0: dude we are back again after that first episode release which has gone so well how cool has that been
1: oh man it's so exciting but all it makes me feel like is there's just so much more to like think about and so much more to discuss
0: i mean we haven't even scratched the outer surface of all of the great shit there is to talk about
4: well i mean not yeah.
0: necessarily because our lives are so interesting i, I think they, you know they're fairly interesting but we just um oh we've had so many special guests already and we've had we've recorded so much dialogue between you and me it could just go so many places we're really pumped and the feedback's been really good i think we had um by the first within 24 hours of the first episode going live i had like 30 views Which to me, I don't know, that sounded like a lot at first. I haven't peeked at it recently. It's only been a couple of days.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I think uh, people are hungry for this kind of information. And I think we really are excited because we picked this week's uh, topic and I got so jazzed up because, I mean, it's mythical to me, right? It is. Growing, growing up, uh, I lived, I moved around a lot, but I li- kind of lived on the East Coast and in the me South yeah. and stuff like that. And California was this, you know, legendary place,
4: mm.
1: right? Oh, There's yeah. Beaches and palm trees and surfing. Movie stars and yeah. rock bands. Just right? everywhere exciting that I wasn't. <laughs> And Pretty I much. could not That's how I felt too. wait to go <laughs> out west. It was like some kind of, you know, uh, like on the road kind of mythology, up. right? Like just, just get in the car like a and lighthouse. head that way, right? Yes, same. And, and one of the like places that really stood out in, as a legend was like Hate Ashbury.
0: Oh, yeah. The one and only epicenter of the of the original psychedelic wave that just
1: transformed
0: everything
3: came yeah. out of that little
0: neighborhood and and just like you laura i think we we discovered that recently that we both moved i mean i think from the time i was born until 14 we moved every year and it was a different state but it was none of the cool ones it was always like fucking oh we lived in like i, I can't even list them anymore because we have so many but it was like texas and pittsburgh and fucking nebraska and like but i remember when it came time for junior high school we were going to move one final time and then settle in for a while and my dad had a choice he had a job offer in uh, southern california or birmingham alabama and he was like split between the two and we ended up going to alabama and i've just thought so many times how different my life would have turned out if we ended up in California <laughs> back then, but alas, I had to wait until I finished high school, and then I was in California. I think a month later, after I finally finished high school in Alabama, and then have never left.
1: Yeah, do you remember the uh, first time that you came to California?
0: I do, and and the haight Ashbury is right right there. Yeah, I guess we can jump into it. So so this week, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna f- focus on the hate Ashbury, and and our special guest is a good friend of mine who is just in a. San Francisco legend. I mean, the cat is like a, he's just, he's a living, breathing, tripping, just organic mass of Haight-Ashbury history. He's been there since, I think he said he moved there in 60 or he, he was really there pre-Summer of Love and still is there to this day. And I met that cat. Well, when he had a store down on Lower Haight and uh, we, you know, we struck up a, a friendship in the store he eventually grew to trust me enough that he ended up inviting me over to his house where we played music. We started playing music and we still do to this day. And uh he actually plays keyboards and a little band I made there out of his house, out of his living room, which come to find out that it's a tradition that started that that jam- free jamming in his living room is a tradition that started after the evening of the first human being be in and it still continues to this day. So it's just, it's been such a, such a trip knowing that cat and we got him to talk to us for like an hour. Uh, so, but we wanted to first talk about our experiences with the Ashbury because we, they are many at this point. And yeah, Laura, I mean, I, I knew I wanted to come out West and I was, um, like I said, I, I graduated high school. I did that summer dead tour. So I like high school graduation. I think two days later I was at the Highgate show in Vermont and then did pretty much that whole tour until Pittsburgh. I jumped off at Pittsburgh because I was just a little. You know i just didn't i just didn't know how to tour well back then i was i was you know, pretty young and, and didn't have much money or any money and just like <laughs> yeah. ba- i was like backpacking it no really i like i remember i had a van i had a bus like in high school and i sold it to before i went on that summer tour because i just wanted like be, i just wanted to be free from the van or whatever so <laughs> I, I would get tried as i went you know a lot of times it would literally be like i mean like rfk comes to mind where i was walking out of the show you know good and high and trying to figure out where how i was going to get to what was that, after rfk that year i think maybe pittsburgh was after rfk that year and uh did have a ride and only had a little backpack and uh i remember knocking on school bus windows in the parking lot and be like hey guys you got <laughs> you got room for one more <laughs> and that went and that went on until like three in the morning i was like literally like Almost one of the only people in the parking lot. Was. Yeah, that. I mean, and to
1: be the last person in a deadlock parking oh, lot really says a lot. There, man. You're
0: really <laughs> yeah. bottom of the barrel at yeah, that point, that's dude. Like, wow. I mean, ooh, yeah. It's like everyone I'm left. There's all... like garbage and like and like cadavers, you know? Yeah. Like... <laughs> the,
1: the big the big machines like pushing things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh
0: yeah. They're sweeping the a lot.
1: lights. Yeah. Totally. I, actually,
0: I think I actually even tried to curl up because I was so tired and tried to just get some sleep in my sleep bag and got woke up by police kicking me and then <laughs> and then thank god I found this one school bus was like yeah all right fine get in here you know they weren't happy about it and it was like everybody it was like all kids like me basically that had okay. nowhere to go or to and this guy was like okay
2: get in the school bus
0: and we spent it was just it was so brutal. We spent the whole night it was like the most ragtag bunch of people and uh, someone had scored a, like someone's credit card in the in the parking lot. like Brown scored a credit card. And so these kids went they, we didn't sleep a wink, dude. It was like all night fucking bumping along in this grimy ass school bus going from gas station to gas station buying like as much like cigarettes, beer. And like water to sell on the lot, as they could, like each stop, and they just did that all night long. It was just brutal.
1: I uh, I just love whoever got that credit card receipt. Oh my god! They were, god. Like, they were, they like, were wow, they were thirsty, life. they just <laughs> were living yeah. off of beer water. Oh, and look at cigarettes.
0: this! Yeah, ten cartons of cigarettes <laughs> yeah. at the Quickie Mart. Yeah, but anyway, so by the time I was I was pretty much over it. So I left and I went, I went backpacking in Vermont, and then and then headed out west on my own, and I went straight to San Francisco. And I didn't know a single soul there, but I knew San Francisco was San Francisco, you know, and and I just I just I felt like I would figure it out. And I got there and I remember there was a great Jerry had already died um, and there was a Freshly and there was a Grateful Dead dance party at the Fillmore that night where they were just playing a show and everyone was dancing. And I showed up and, you know, I didn't really meet anybody. I was kind of bug eyed and just overwhelmed by the city that's the thing is I wasn't really a city kid. And so that's what hit me when I got to SF was it was a, you know, a beautiful, but it was a city city, you know, and uh, I didn't even know where to sleep that night. And I remember one of the guys, this one cat, I met, he, he told me two things that really helped me. He said, um, go to the be- uh, ocean, go to the beach and you can sleep in the dunes and then go North. It's kind there. <laughs> i never forget. He said, go North. It's kind there. And he meant Arcata. <laughs> Yeah. And so where, this is actually where I still live because it was kind there. <laughs> it was kind there. But I lasted – I only lasted two days, Laura. I got there. I, I slept in the dunes that night. I woke up to a cop coming over the dunes um, and waking me up in my sleeping bag, and he searched me. I had spent the last of my money on a, on a hafe. I bought a sack of weed of short, of short little frosty green Cali kind buds that wasn't quite even an eighth for 50 bucks. Uh, and he took it, he took my eighth, he took, stuck his stuff in his little, under his belt and searched me for needles and other drugs and then let me go. But it just shook me up and I was just kind of over it and tired. And so I drove North. So that was my brief first introduction. I'd love to hear yours. However, now the hate expert is like, that's pretty much where I spent all my time when I'm in San Francisco. I've been there since, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times and that's where i stay and i play music and so i know it well now but this was of course what like 30 years ago or something when i first went there so how about you laura Well, i think your history is much richer than mine you know
1: oh well i think one of the things that stands out from what you're saying is uh san francisco if you're broke in San Francisco, if you're not broke is maybe the defining difference and all of oh, that right yeah so, although so if you're you... a
0: young entrepreneur if you're a young entrepreneur, oh and you and, and, you, and you have but you have some hustle in you and a little bit of creativity and a little bit of fearlessness you can you can flip a, a fucking buck there I'll, I'll, we can get back to that because I did return and had some little escapades in the park as a young entrepreneur that actually all worked out really well. <laughs> But please, you're <laughs> taking turn.
1: Well, you know, that that is pretty much the story, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's like you roll up on the hate. And um I think Jerry was still alive when I went there, but you know, uh, you have this mythology like we're talking about like oh it's this magic place and you think you're going to show up and it's going to be like flower power or something and everyone's just going to be shining and new and barefoot and all of these kind (laughs) of things i don't know what i saw in life magazine i'm not sure yeah (laughs) but like well we'll well,
0: we'll, we'll pause because for people who don't know the hate ashbury it's it's a it's literally just a juncture of two two roads it's a neighborhood hate street runs long and then ashbury runs across it and it's right at the tip of the
3: panhandle
0: of Gold, in Golden Gate Park. It's, it's literally just a little neighborhood. So just for all you folks who've heard about it, that's
1: what it is right it it seems like a little neighborhood but it has like such a big rich history it almost seems like its own place inside the city like its own like you know yeah. kingdom right it and is a things-
0: magical mystery vortex
1: <laughs> yes exactly and when i got there it was like the early 90s i don't know like 93 something like that and uh it wasn't so shiny. It actually had like a little bit of grime to it, you know, (laughs) just like the city does, you know, uh, what were your
0: circle? What were the circumstances that brought you there?
1: Well, um, let's see. So we had, we were like in between some shows and we were, we rode into the city to like, try to score, I think some L or something like that, because we, we knew some people and then, uh, we had a friend that was like working and doing this like rave stuff at this club and he was busy and so we just like pulled up onto the hate and parked our our ride and uh we had like this van like a VW van that all of us were like staying in. You
0: could sleep in it. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. And you could okay. just like
1: sleep in it and, and hang out and stuff and you know like you said it was all about the street kid hustle like hate street posse and you know there were some real charming characters right <laughs> did you did you guys
0: just did you find out that you started making this meeting people right away
1: well luckily from shows and tour we already had this kind of like network of people okay. that we knew and recognized because people
0: kind of orbit the hate right i mean even he- if they weren't from they were dick in between tour
1: Right, exactly, and especially the wrecking crew. Oh,
0: shit. <laughs> like,
1: you know, they had their own, like, like you know. I never tangled with those kids. <laughs> yeah, well, they're th- the best, right? <laughs> so, like, Fast Eddie and Ira and all of these cast of characters. And-, and for people who don't know what I'm talking about, they were kind of older than us by a few years. And Fast Eddie was this just legendary character like i think he literally had like 15 million patches on his outfit and (laughs) tie-dye and and, like you know he was definitely uh hilarious and stuff and you know they they were uh they were just definitely the outlaws of the scene and they Mm. definitely held a a space there and there was like patches and kells bells and just these just Hilarious and funny, and a little bit uh, wild card adventure type of characters that were happening. And yeah, the only way you could really kind of get around was, you know, uh, hustling a little bit. So, like Matthew was saying, there's these things called hates. <laughs> which was basically like an eighth of weed, but maybe just a, a little eight bit eight. shorter. <laughs> right? Only a little? Like, like pinch a little bit for yourself and then no, sell This is the how this
0: is, what I, this is how I remember eighths. <laughs> there would be an actual eighth, which was 3.5. The kids would take it, it break it in half, take the head nug out of each half and then sell each one as eighths for 50.
1: Yeah, and, and um, there was also... Uh, Basically, the whole point was just to find good custies. <laughs> and that was like <laughs> and that was just like a lingo for like customer. <laughs>
0: Customer, right. Yeah, right. It's kind like, of a semi-derogatory. Was... <laughs> yeah, way semi, right. For, for <laughs> tourists who will buy a sack of weed, if overpriced Yeah,
1: so you just go around like buds, doses, all this kind of stuff and just try to hustle up a little bit of money. I didn't spend too much time like actually needing to like do work this. in the block. Yeah. Right, because I also like was back on tour. We had friends. We were traveling all over. But there were some definite characters that were holed up, and that, like, literally was their life, you know? Mm. We um, also would get hotels, and, you know, just one of the fun things was always just having names for stuff. So, there was this restaurant called uh, Phuket Thai, but it was spelled P-H, and we used to call it <laughs> <Fuck> It Thai. <laughs> and then like and there's like you know instead of the easy eight it was like the sleazy eight Mm. or instead of motel six we'd be like let's go to the motel six up which was kind of like a cough kind of thing to say you know but there was definitely those like uh you know tribal elders right so you have like maybe around yeah and and i think they added like a little bit of grounding and a little bit of uh Ideas about how not to go too far over the edge. Mm, kept right? kind, of, kind of
0: kept. There was. I don't know. There was a really something that struck me is is there was kind of this self policing, like ethic, um, on the, amongst the street kids. I have to say, and it was it was it was surprising because it was pretty much self policed. Um, you know, where I didn't I didn't have any experience with you know getting ripped off people. I could front people things that would, co- you know, they would come, these were street kids, you know, they would come back and pay me or have it back. You know, I never had any issues and I was pretty impressed by that. Cause this was, you know, I think just like in the 60s, it was just a, it was just a melange of whoever showed up and a lot of, I think probably troubled kids who've been, you know, homeless and on the run or, um, you know, it just gets a hell of a nexus point for travelers and and I but yet there seems to be an ethic that is dominant there that I don't assume is there in other in other cities and that's a carryover i i feel like of the the ethos of the of the 60s
1: yeah i think you know one of the ethos of this 60s too is it's a time where there was like a lot of you know uh, fun things like weed and LSD. And I think when I arrived in the 90s, I expected that same kind of thing. But one of the things that had really taken over the environment in a big way is um, crack a little bit, but mostly oh. like heroin, right? Really? So lots okay. of like, and uh, like, uh, big time like needles would be like laying on the street mm. and stuff. I remember when I had my kid and Ethan and he was like maybe like one or something and we went to this uh Summer of Love 1996 mm-hmm. that was like in the park mm-hmm. and it was just such an incredible event and I think like I was Jello, like the
0: 50 the 50 year the 50 from, year from the like,
1: yeah Angela offering and, and it was the first time I had been back to the hate as a parent Rather than just like as somebody kind of like running around causing mayhem. And I remember I literally could not take Ethan out of like the little baby backpack that I had because I was just like holy cow oh, like so many your, your, needles your, yeah and just so wow. much stuff around right oh, wow. i just was like wow this isn't like the this isn't like a family rich environment
0: <laughs> okay okay well that's an angle i guess i was fortunate to go not i was probably too naive to notice
1: Yeah, I think when you um are protecting someone else, your eye, like you start to see the world like differently, right? You're not just like walking around on yourself. All of a sudden, your eyes are like catching like every little thing that could be like possibly crazy. And so, yeah, I like you and was not too much of a city kid, but I Uh did enjoy some of the aspects of the city i remember some of the funnest times i ever had was um dosing really hard and going into golden gate park
0: mm, oh it, it is a world-class park you guys
1: and it's a kind it's of it's
0: it's phenomenal park god there's so much to it
1: oh you could like you could just do that like all day mm. every day right? never see it yeah never, never see, it see the whole thing
0: every, after... i still to this day after 25 or 30 years i still find new parts of it all the time
1: yes and one of the things they have in there is the botanical gardens right and it's so fun because like you go in there and then you can almost feel like you're in a different country Mm. and every little place like you're oh i'm in uruguay now and there's even like redwoods with the whole like redwood you know with creeks and everything it's Mm. really just magical and really well
0: maintained Yeah, and i I guess apparently a lot of kids stay Sleep and live in the park, which is hard to believe because it's, it's it's not a junky park at all. I mean it's, it's just really well maintained by the city and just quite beautiful and very bio, you know botanically diverse. but there are all these little like niches and little places that I could see people who just post up and sleep you know well, that would be some of the, and...
1: the weirdest thing right because like you'd be all you know walking through and you'd kind of have your like little magical space you're creating for yourself and all of a sudden like you're oh I'm in the Redwood Forest but then you like look <laughs> up and it would be like a fence and then there's like Judah and like all the you know like cars driving by and you're like oh that's right, right. I'm in the middle of the city you know yeah,
0: you forget <laughs> it I know
1: and like you know so there's like places where you could just kind of create uh, not being in the city and take rest bit but then there's also this great kinetic energy that the city has and a great rich history.
0: Yeah, very. Yeah, and, and if you know, especially you know, we're talking about counterculture and just free thinking and the arts and the music. Um it's I you know I, I one of my favorite things to this day, I mean it never gets old, is I know our guest, you know, he lives he lives right on that original block where the Grateful Dead House was and you know he really was the, he was there since before they moved in and after they left and just within that block um so much went down you know uh, to think of the 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 powerhouse artists and musicians that would walk that block there's something about something about that you know i don't i don't get too much into like ley lines or like power you know meridians on the earth and stuff but there, there's certainly something about that particular block and i know in, i mean i've heard it said in the 60s it was a really people gravitated there because it was a like really affordable rent um you know in the early 60s and so like a lot of students and artists kind of flock there but i don't know i don't know which came first but it it's still it's changed i'm sure it's changed a lot i've definitely i think my fantasies about what it was like in the 60s are probably far loftier than, than the reality of it um you know i you see you know just some gorgeous like photographs that evoke such emotions with uh, you know from the like the the, really that first summer of love like you know 66 and 67 before people really started flocking there you know just there seems to be this this innocence you know you just see these beautiful men and women you know yeah barefoot or or topless just cruising around playing flutes and you know laughing and hugging and um yeah it, it it has that kind of romanticism to it but of course, now there's there's a it's it's a grimier, I'd say it's definitely still a shops district. You know, there's really just a lot of funky
1: head shops there, and, and tattoo some shops amazing, and some good
0: restaurants. Right. And Amiga amazing places there. like the
1: Red Vic and Love Red and Vic Hate is and all of these kind of things. So there's yeah. been like a revival, you know, uh, it and- seems
0: like it doesn't it, recently in the last like 10 years
1: yeah it's pretty it's pretty amazing and one of the things about san francisco if you've never been there is it is not a flat city (laughs) it's small (laughs) in square footage but there's like all these hills in it right (laughs) and when we were there we had this crazy bus and it um the clutch went out on it so you couldn't go in reverse and the thing about the city is is you have to parallel park a lot.
0: Oh, God, on a hill.
1: (laughs) On a hill, right? (laughs) So... so we would have God, to help us. drive all the way around to like you know Holy
4: Christ.
1: find yeah it was just it was just in insanity and stuff and we even had we, one time we were like trying to escape the city because that's another you know thing is once you're in it it's just kind of like becomes your world mm. and then you almost feel like you it's kind of like a vortex <laughs> and, And so so we were like, okay, we're going to leave. And, you know, again, with a van, again, with a lot of people, again, with a lot of your shit in it. And Mm -hmm. so we start going across the Oakland Bay Bridge. And... Uh, like uh all of a sudden like we run out of gas and the bridge goes up and then it kind of crest and then it starts to go down so we're like okay no problem like everybody just get out and push <laughs> right get hump, huh? <laughs> Right. so it's like buffalo and mark and me and everything and i forget i think like don and larry are like in the front driving it's just this like a van of wackadoodles and so uh they're like okay just push 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 and it's like people are going on the bridge and it's like rush hour and everybody's honking and like flipping us off and being like what are you guys doing (laughs) so all of a sudden we get to the crest and we're like shoo this is much more relaxing we're not pushing like 10 people's worth of stuff and dogs up a bridge now and then all of a sudden It starts to go down, and now it's got the weight of not only an entire ride, but all of our stuff in it, and it just starts going faster and faster. So we're on the back of the VW bus bumper, and our (laughs) fingers are literally hanging in that little metal rim. Oh, my gosh. And and we're all of a sudden with the weight of it and the downhill of the bridge, we're literally cruising to where my friends breaking not to start going like eighty and miles you all are just an hour, hanging on to the back right? Side of and it? people just are all they can see are like, there goes those hippies <laughs> from the eight, <hate,"> you know? <laughs> they're just they're just riding on the bridge, hanging out on the bus, you know. <laughs> I think we pulled over in Treasure Island, which is kind of like this military complex, and we were like dude we need some like gas or whatever and they're like we're not going to help you and aaa wouldn't come out cuz it was like a military thing and mm. so we're just like okay well whatever this is before you know cell phones really So we just take out our skateboards and our drums and all of that (laughs) stuff. And we just start like camping and like laying out and eventually the military people are like, we'll do anything to get (laughs) you guys out of here. here. (laughs) (laughs) So there was no escaping (laughs) the city too. That's like another thing, you know, and, (laughs) and, and, oh, so, you know, and and so it's so impressive when you see people who really live like a lifetime through that.
0: Yeah, it really is. I, you know, I've always had a, Fantasy, and I think now it'll have to wait till another lifetime of of having a good, you know, just doing the city, like the, living in San Francisco for like you know five years or something, just to just to feel that and experience that. And I, you know, I I'm a country guy, and um but I have such soft place for San Francisco. I've just I have just fallen in love with that city so hard since I moved out here in in the late '90s. And uh like I said, I, I before the pandemic, I would go down there a few times a month for for several days, and um, Gosh, when I, you know, now these days I just go to play music and um, I'll stay at my friend's guest house and and we'll just jam and I'll just kind of go for walks and just walk around the neighborhood and just kind of soak it in, you know, sometimes dose a little bit and just, yeah, walk through the park or, but there was a time when I first, when I first would go there, um, it was when I just, I just started growing weed for the first time. I grew like a, I had like a little 400 watt lamp in a closet up in Humboldt and and you know, this was back in the day when, when it was worth a lot of fucking money. And uh, I would take my whatever half pound of, of homegrown bud, and and God, I look back in the sound like, God damn, that was ballsy. Like I don't know, <laughs> I would just never do that these days. And nothing bad happened, but it was just like I surprised myself sometimes how how much we would just step out into the world. And because I, I I literally would just drive down there. I don't want no single soul. I'd go park my truck. In my backpack, I'd have. My half pound broken up into eighths, real eighths, by the way, like <laughs> 3.5 grams. <laughs>
1: wow, you're so real, generous. <laughs> real eighths,
0: you know, and yes. that's, which is disturbing the balance of the street, but there's, I'll get to that <laughs> because there's that kind of was working for me. So, and I just would start, I would just start walking around through the city, through, through the hate Ashbury. I would stay, stay in that neighborhood and, you know, buds, were, you know, as people were walking by, if they looked kind of cool, not too square, they could be cops. And then, uh, and i'd sell them to like the people like that and then what happened is once i got to the park there was this whole network of like street kids that you know were there had been there for a long time you know they all had their street street kid names you know like a you know, badger and fucking you know sunflower and <laughs> yeah. ra- rainbow and you know <laughs> and uh and these were kids all different stories but but there was this Thing, the system, this way that stuff went down there—that was just fascinating. So I would, you know, within a couple hours of being there, I'd have already made a couple friends who were street kids. I would front—I would give them an eighth of real a. Like I said, they would go out. I'd, well, think what they do is they'd split it in half, take out a nug of each one, and then sell each one for fifty, and then come back and get another one. And I would just kick it on Hippie Hill, which is just this kind of a famous hill in the park where I think a lot of gatherings used to happen. There's always a drum circle. It seems like there's always a drum circle there on on a nice day. And I just would post up on the hill and just chill. And then these kids would just work my bags for me. And then, and, and then I always got paid. There was only one person that that didn't pay me for an ounce he owed me. And, I ended up like, <laughs> next time I was back in the city, I, I pulled up to park and he was standing at a payphone right where I happened to park. And I was like,
4: yes, I was like, awesome. hey, dude,
0: what's up? You <laughs> didn't send me that. You're in Western Union, me that, you know, boy. And he and he paid me and he paid. But uh
1: Wow, that's that, crazy. That's besides awesome. that, it was very
0: honorable. The kids they, they hustled, they were so grateful for the extra work and you know everyone was happy. So
1: Yeah, I every mean, it's like, you know, being a runner and like mm-hmm. jamming, but there was also you could be a spanger too. And and I know like as far as like all the kids, you'd much rather have, like, work, you know, right. or just yeah. some, like, weed to sell or a way to make, a, like, an honorable living rather than, like, needing the, like, spare change or what we would call, like, spanging and stuff, yeah. you know?
0: Every kid I met was up for, was up for working, and they would just hit the street hard, you know, and, uh, yeah, yeah, I was really surprised how, how, and I was, and they were, as I would talk to and get to know some of them, they would say, yeah, you know, that there was a very, a self-regulating kind of ethos there. You know, you didn't, you didn't rip people off. You know, if you did, you just weren't. You just. Your name was just dirt, you know. And
1: um, Yeah, but yeah. definitely didn't mean that you didn't get ripped off. Okay. So mm. one time I was with like um, I must Wayne. have maybe I might have
0: been just fortunate.
1: <laughs> Wayne and Tony. And and no, it wasn't necessarily in those kind of circumstances. So they like, you know, you'd go to like the laundromat and everyone had to do their laundry. And right next to it was like the bathrooms and and in the stalls, you know, there's like that space at the bottom of the stall door, right? Okay. And so, um, and so Wayne was used in the restaurant. Room and his, you know, pants were down, right? Oh, and so this crackhead like oh, in lower knee decided he was going to, like, you know, s- try to steal his pants to get his wallet, but he <laughs> had a chain wallet, right? <laughs> so when he went to pull the pants, like, it, was the, attached. he, it, kept, he had a weight wallet, on the
0: right? other end, huh? He
1: opens, he opens the bathroom door and he goes running down the thing, like, no pants on, oh, holding man. his chain wallet <laughs> crack it's trying to crack- run
4: off, and then caught crack crack head. Head
1: drops I caught the a crack pants head. and, like, you know, the chain wallet saved the day. But, but for the oh, most shit. part, you know, but well, that those was crack- lower
0: hate. That was lower hate too, which is yeah, exactly. a bit rougher.
1: A bit rougher. Once rougher. you get
0: past Fillmore, yeah, I, my 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 always sense was the vibe kind of changed.
1: Yes, that's you too? true. Yeah,
0: yeah, it just yeah. got a little gr- grittier and a little more hardcore crackhead <laughs> vibes.
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: But nothing like you know i guess they, when the boys were in town and stuff because like i never i never was hitting the hate when jerry was alive but afterwards you know so many phil shows and bobby shows at the warfield and stuff and and it was always just a complete experience i and especially when, when phil had Terrapin crossroads i i would just do this over and over again because to me it was like the perfect afternoon i would go i'd start the day down the hate ashbury i'd play some music i'd take some acid and have like the first couple hours of my trip just in the sunshine on the haight Ashbury, and then get a drive up across the bridge to Marin, and then see Phil play. And it was just like such a quintessential California afternoon.
1: Yeah. I
0: just couldn't, I couldn't get enough of that.
1: No, you cannot. And yeah, and and it's it's really amazing. To, I I can see why someone would spend like their lifetime living in that place and being a part of the fabric of it, and literally within moments you can be in the beach in the park at the ocean yeah uh you can be right over the bridge the in Marin. there's like art and culture and some of the art that has come out of uh hate ashbury is some of the yeah. in my humble opinion yes. the best Same. art in like the whole world right
0: it's incredible the artistic vein that runs there is very real Yeah, yeah, it just seems to attract, I think, artists and musicians, and it's really cool to just witness all the cross pollination. And it's it's now it's such wide genres of everything. You know, it's it's you get punk vibes and you get all these different you know expressions down there. It can be pretty pretty. You know, we've got some darker punk energy there too. You know, it's
1: it's not all. It's colorful, like it's very you know, colorful. To, ha- to have like that whole realm of humanity and the city. It's an international city, you know, yes. yeah. and and each of the neighborhoods are so unique and the way that Hate Ashbury lies in that part of the city, it's kind of at an intersection or a crossroads between juxtaposed against all these neighborhoods. And each of them have like such a rich uh addition to like the history and story of San Francisco. That's right.
0: Well we'll just have to turn it over to our guest, our very special guest this week. Henry Strouch aka Svi, dear, my good friend, mentor, teacher, San Francisco original, and just a walking well of history. Couldn't thank you enough, man. And hey, Laura, let's just meet back here after we let Svi take it from here, and then uh, we'll talk about some of what we thought.
2: Synchronicity. Three things happened in 1938. Albert Hoffman discovered LSD. The Nazis invaded Vienna, Austria in March 1938. That was called the Anschluss. And Harry V. Strauss was born in Nazi Vienna, June 21st, 1938. Hmm. Still under still under Nazi rule. Oh yes, it was the beginning of Nazi rule. Wow. So they came in in March, and took over the entire community, entire country of Austria. And uh, the Gestapo came for my father twice. One time he paid off one of the cops with a gold watch, and the second time he hid out in a neighbor's apartment and then he paid smugglers to take him through switzerland to belgium which was neutral and where we had cousins in antwerp and uh i was maybe about six months old and my mother had a sister who was living in london going uh, studying philosophy at the university of london and so she sent my mother papers to come over as a domestic Mm. to england and the only problem was my mother was able to get on the the um train and go to Antwerp, and she wasn't going to be bothered but she didn't have any papers for me oh you were an infant you were an infant
0: at this point yeah she
2: didn't yeah i was about six or eight months old so she decided to get on the train and go through belgium to antwerp and when the gestapo stopped the train they weren't supposed to be in belgium but they were already roaming around there um she said are any jews in this car my mother kept her mouth shut <laughs> wow man. so we otherwise I would have been a schindler's list kid that's right uh anyway they made it to um Antwerp and my cousins got them a room and the Jewish community supported them for about a year and then we had cousins in Hollywood and they sent us affidavits so in 1941 after having lived in Belgium for two years the war already was full blast we made it to New York on a a ship and we lived in New York for about uh two years and then we had cousins in san francisco and my father came out here and got a job and then brought us out here so i came to san francisco in 43 and i grew up in san francisco went to high school here and then i went to um cal in berkeley and then i got a master's degree from harvard university when timothy leary was there uh, my wife and i after harvard we came back to san francisco and we bought a house, uh, on Ashbury Street, uh, two doors down from where the Grateful Dead lived. Well, we came here first, we, and then we had already had a folk art gallery, and, um, then we opened up the third hippie shop called In Gear down on Haight Street, and then was part. What year was Oak. that? That was, uh, July 1966. All right. The one of the moves. first, one of the first on that yeah. in the neighborhood, yeah. Yeah, we were the third shop. Um, Nasitica was first. Uh, Peggy Caserta, who uh, owned uh, Nasitica, was one of Janice's lovers. She wrote a book called "Going Down with Janice." When I was at Harvard, I uh, I was studying philosophy, and I was the librarian of the philosophy library, and in that building. Uh, Leary used to have his class, his uh, graduate seminars, and they were uh, beginning to do the um, mushroom experiments with prisoners and with his students. And one day I saw this uh, poster for a, a, a lecture. It was called Psych, uh LSD, and the Mystical Experience." Alan Watts and Timothy Leary. So I went to that uh, lecture. <laughs> Was that your first exposure to psychedelic consciousness? Uh somewhat because um I, I had always I had been studying religion when I was uh undergraduate at uh Cal because I was studying philosophy and also Near Eastern languages and studying the Bible and the original Hebrew and medieval texts and so on. And my wife had Smoked marijuana back in the mid in mid fifties when she was growing up in L.A. and she was hanging out with these jazz musicians going out to Venice Beach. But then when I met her in Berkeley, she she wasn't smoking any weed then. But um, uh, when we came back from um, Harvard, we had at our first gallery we ran into a couple of uh, neo beats poets that used to come in and then we started smoking weed. And then from that then in nineteen sixty four we heard about something called L S D on sugar cubes. And that's when we took our first acid trip.
0: On the east coast at Harvard?
2: No, that was in San Francisco. Oh okay. Sixty four. Because there, oh there were these, there were these doctors, uh, it was still legal, it was legal. Must until have been October. Sandoz, yeah? sandos. asked. Yeah, it was legal until October 6th, 1966, and in 64 and 65, there were these uh, therapists down on the peninsula, who for 125 bucks, you got an eight hour session and a dose of Sandoz. <laughs> <laughs> How about that? Uh, yeah. that was for back then, though. That was... <laughs> back then <laughs> so at Harvard that's where you got your first degree in major bullshit. no that, I got my first degree in Berkeley in 1959 and then I went to Harvard from 59 to 61 okay. and I got an AM because Harvard doesn't give degrees in English the degrees are in Latin so I got an oh. Ars Magister which means Master of Arts M.A. Oh, no. But I have an A.M., so that means I went to a real Tony school. <laughs> <laughs> Ivy League, baby. And that, yeah.
0: Wow. That's impressive. Yeah, you know, so I've known, uh, we've known each other uh, probably about at least 15 years, man. And uh, I never knew that about you, that you had spent your your, your childhood in, in San Francisco
2: and then went back to the East Coast. I was, you were from the East Coast. That's really interesting. Oh, yeah. No, Where'd you go to high school? Uh, I, yeah, no, I I was only back east for two years, and then we came oh, back. Man, let's go. I lived You're in a real San Francisco Okay. Yeah. What was your high school? High school was Lowell High School, the old Lowell High School, which um, back which is the academic high school of San Francisco. Nice. And I was on the tr- uh, cross country uh, championship team, and I was a pole vaulter. I won third place all city, and I was also in the slide rule club. (laughs) What what, what the fuck? People don't even know what a slide rule. is. I don't know. I don't either. Do you, (laughs) Laura? Is that like the math club? Yeah. Slide rule. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Good guess. The slide rule is a piece, three pieces of wood, with numbers on them, and if you you can multiply, divide, and do tangents. But you know, this was before. This is when Univac was at Berkeley and it was three rooms of tubes and all it could do was add, subtract, <laughs> and multiply and divide. Oh geez. No, it's
5: right. kind of like it's kind of like an abacus, you know, in the way that it's just yeah, an instrument that oh. you can like manipulate with your hands and move around to get different mathematical stuff, right?
2: Right, I actually uh, learned how to do the abacus because we used to sell them at one of our galleries. So I got had a little book and learned how to do that. But uh, that, unless you you know keep doing it, it it's too slow. I, I like computers. Wow. <laughs>
0: yeah, that. But that was before electricity was invented, wasn't it?
2: Yeah. Uh, that,
0: that's way <laughs> oh
5: no! Oh yeah. no! <laughs>
0: well, that's some next. That's some next level nerd shit, man. That's pretty impressive. Yeah.
5: Well, what I was interested in is you were talking earlier about, you know, um, 66, 67, and you mentioned uh, when LSD became illegal. Can you actually recall when LSD was made illegal, like back in 66, yes.
2: Here's what happened. Um, one afternoon, um, so my wife and I would go down to uh, our shop in gear down on, we were on the, 1500 block, which was really the the center of the Haight-Ashbury hippie scene. Mm -hmm. Nasitica was there, the psychedelic, they were at 1510, the psychedelic shop was at 1535, and we were at 1580, and then there were about five other shops up and down that same block. And uh, word traveled very fast. And one afternoon, someone said, "The Grateful Dead are playing down at the Panhandle." So I told my wife, "You stay here and <laughs> uh-huh.
0: she, man the shop." She, she, huh? was, she was more
2: interested in making the sales. So I said, "Okay, you stay here. I'm going down the Panhandle." And uh, what it was was October sixth, nineteen sixty six, 1966, the day that the state of California had. Uh, that was the last day it was legal in, in the state. And so they were holding a love, uh, I think they called it the love pa, love pageant or love rally. And the people that organized that, um, Alan Cohn and Michael Bowen. Alan Cohn, uh, is a poet who became the editor of the San Francisco Oracle, the, newspaper that kind of represented the whole hippie movement here. And Michael Bowen was an artist. So they or founded something called the Psychedelic Rangers, which included Alan and Michael, and then me and Ron Fellon from the psychedelic shop and Gene Anthony, a famous photographer. And we're the ones that planned the human being for January fourteenth, nineteen sixty seven. And uh it turned out to be a fantastic day out at the polo fields. And what do you
0: remember what do you remember about how that idea came to be? Like like take us back uh, to when well, you guys I, were just the original spring for that idea.
2: Well the spring uh the love rally turned out to be so successful and uh Alan Cohn was always uh, into wanting to have big community events and michael bowen uh, also was a uh, big um, mucky muck type kind of guy mm-hmm. so they, they kind of were a grandite and grandi they were grandiose uh-huh. ideas and they uh, corralled me and ron because we were making the money to come in because we <laughs> we ended up uh-huh paying for all the posters and for all the production. Uh-huh. And um, actually, I, I have a picture of our press conference that happened the week before. Oh, yeah, we'll put that up on our we website. We thought maybe 5,000 people are going to show close. The newspapers say 20,000. It was more like 50,000. And, uh, Allen Ginsberg was there doing some, uh, Hindu chanting on the stage. And then Gary Snyder, the beat poet, read some poems. And then Lenore Candel, uh, read her, uh, some of her poems. And, uh, Leary, tune in, turn on drop out, tune in, turn on, and drop out, gave that big speech. And then the dead played, and um, I think uh, Big Brother and the Holding Company played. And then in the middle of the afternoon, this biplane flew over the field, and thousands of roses were thrown out of the plane. And then all of a sudden, some guy parachutes out of the plane into the center of the crowd and starts handing out white lightning, and that was Owsley Stanley. <laughs> I don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> so that turned into, uh, so that night, uh, we took. My wife and I were there. We took acid. Um, so a bunch of people came over to the house and we're all sitting around, it was around eight o'clock. And we're all still high. And I had some hand drums from uh, when I'd been in an Israeli dance troupe. And um, there were some other, somebody, Malachi was there with a uh, guitar. He's He uh, was a uh, psychedelic musician. And we just started playing um, improvised music, and that was the birth of the Amplified Home. We went on to create a band which uh, whose premise was uh, we get high from the music, and if you get high from listening to it, uh, we think that's great, too. And, and <laughs> We've done our job. <laughs> here's an interesting story. Uh, in 68, uh, you heard a synonym. It was like... Um, uh aaa alcohols and Anom- anonymous oh. or drugs i've only and, heard of al anon well it, this was called synanon and they had a big warehouse in uh downtown san francisco where they all lived and so on and we were invited to play a wedding on an afternoon so we get there and we are we're on a stage and it's in a ra- we were in the center and the people were around and we start playing and people are dancing and coming up to hear the music and after two songs um, the counselor that's running the thing comes over to us and he says stop you have to leave right now everyone's getting high from the music you're freaking Get out, out. <laughs> yeah. they're, they're
5: all going wild <laughs> I, I can't believe
2: it I mean it was incredible You turned on the wedding party, man. So we packed up and we left. And then another time we were invited to play for these, uh, in 67, there was a meeting of psychologists here in San Francisco. They were discussing what is this psychedelic experience? So I gave a big long talk and some other guys gave some talk and then couple of smart asses kept saying but what, what 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 is it what is it what is it like <laughs> so my drummer uh brian uh edmund who is a very fantastic sculptor and a very impulsive artistic type he got so pissed off he started pounding away on the drums and i got on my vibraphone and the guitar started playing we just Played like crazy for ten minutes, and then boom, we stopped, and everybody was in on silence. <laughs> now, was <is> the end. <laughs> yeah. or
5: just the beginning. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, Svi, it sounds like that was the beginning of. Uh, correct me if I if I misunderstood this, but that human being, that jam, at your place, began really what I think of as a tradition of something that you, something I'm so grateful to you for. Because you opened you, you, that home now is called Frisco Wave Sound Lab. And you open, yeah. you've opened up that same space to a
2: multitude of different musicians and artists over the years, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I even did it, uh, we used to do it up at my ranch in Mendocino at Deer Valley. And, uh, yes, I've continued doing it here. Some years I haven't been playing, but, um, now I'm back into it and you're one of my compatriots. That's and right. That's right. That's Inspired. how you got. You really
0: got me started on music doing that, man. And it's such a fantastic environment because you took that same psychedelic sensibility. I mean, it, it, you completely. You have this approach to music that's been so wonderful and so inclusive of, of of artists in that there really are no rules. You have this welcome space for for musicians to just really explore freely, in. and the emphasis mm-hmm. is on the is on the freedom, right, man?
2: Rule number one, there are no rules. Rule number two, refer to rule number one. Motherfucker. And then one of my teachers, the famous jazz musician Bobby Hutcherson said, there are no bad notes. Ah, uh, dig it. And um, a famous jazz pianist, V.J. Ayers said, trust in the process.
3: And Denny Zeitman,
2: the famous jazz a pianist and a psychoanalyst who's still practicing and is alive, said you have to get out of the way of the music in order to let the music happen. Hmm. And And, uh, um, that's what we do. We get out of the way of the music. (laughs) And the music happens, baby, let me tell you. Well, it
5: sounds like to me that you're, like, a real patron of, like, the music and art. You were, like, one of the early people in the hip, the hate-independent proprietors, too, right?
2: Right. Um, we uh, What happened was um, a black couple that we knew opened an ice cream shop slightly off of Hate on Cole Street. It was called Quasars after the newly discovered quasar uh, in the sky. And um, we said, hey, uh, Cliff and Gloria, you got to join the Haight-Ashbury Merchants Association because Ron fell of the Psychedelic Shop and I were members of the regular association. And so they said, okay, we'll join. So then when it came to a boat, they were turned down. So I went to the president, Mendel Herskowitz, and I said, Mendel, what is this bullshit? And he goes Yes, yes. <laughs> uh what are we practicing racism here? Come on, Jew boy, let's get this straight. And he goes, Uh, well, they're not on eighth street. So we said Ron and I said, Well, we're quitting and we're starting a new organization called Hip hate independent proprietors, and we had a big news conference, and that's how that got started. And within two years, there were like 30 of us in that group. And we, uh, what we did is we also founded something called the uh, Hip uh, Job Co-op, which we ran out of one of the stores called Wild Colors, so that people uh, who were coming to the hate and didn't have any work or anything could get. get started doing, you know, different jobs mm-hmm. and so on. So it wasn't just uh, an organization. We, um, oh, and by the way, here is the origin of the phrase, the love generation. So Ron Fellin and I wanted, uh, first of all, we began to notice that with all the new hippies coming because of all the media after the BN, 67, they were just beginning to pour into the hate every weekend and teenagers and runaways and the cops would never show up when there was trouble. And they were just down the block at the park station, which is like four blocks from where we were. So we had a meeting with uh, police chief Cahill and Ron and I walk in and he goes, what do you guys call yourselves? And we you go, what? Well, I know in North Beach, they got the Beats and then the Beatniks. And what are you guys? <laughs> and so Ron, who used to be kind of a, a super new age Christian, goes, we're the new community. <laughs> and the police chief goes, no, you're not. You are a love Generation." And that was the first time that expression was ever used by anybody. And it was in the newspaper the next day. Well, so the heat coined that phrase. He coined that phrase, the love generation. How about that? Yeah. That's
5: ironic. <laughs> 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 I had no idea that the police were involved in that.
2: <laughs> well, there was also one cop who was very friendly. His name was Captain Sunshine. Mm-hmm and then there was another cop who was always busting everybody an undercover cop his name was Art Garrands and um we had uh anyhow let's see yeah keep going and After- you know oh yeah cool ah. cool um you
0: know what you know what I think of, when I think about that see um that time you know and having not been there i i've always imagined it and Kind of fantasize what it would have been, what it must have been like. So, from your perspective, like when acid really started coming onto the scene and the Love Generation was really beginning and blooming, what changes did you notice around you from the hate, like with attitudes and with social
2: relationships? Well, for one, there were no homeless. When people showed up, if you were walking on Hate Street at night, you saw some. Young teenager wandering around or something, and everyone would be taken home to the everyone had big apartments or big homes and had a crash pad so there were nobody was sleeping on the streets. None of this bullshit that we have right since the eighties when Reagan kicked everybody out of the uh mental institutions and um after the vietnam uh war when the veterans started falling through the cracks uh people um ba- bounded banded together um we went to the dances at the fillmore or uh the avalon ballroom which was run by the family dog um we enjoyed music people uh began to think about organic food because if uh you put in Bad gas into your car, it's going to run bad. If you put in good gas, good food, you're going to feel better and be better. So that was kind of part of the start of the organic uh, food movement. And we actually had a uh, one of our hippie merchants, he was a blind jazz musician, Jerry Sealand, and his wife was blind. They had a store on Page Street called Farfetched Foods, and they also used to uh, deal drugs. And (laughs) even though they were blind, and then he moved up in '70 was up in uh, Santa Rosa, and um, had a health food store there. And then he got popped for in mid '70s for huge amount of Thai. Uh, sticks, tie weed, and went to prison for a while. Mm. Uh, I don't know. I, I think they both have uh, passed on since then. Um, Did, I do you notice, that, you notice the influence um, it, it, of acid
0: kind of in the, in the values of the culture that we're changing in the neighborhood? Well,
2: um, for one, um, uh, well, well let's all right, look. The fifties was called the silent generation because everybody was just in the kids and in college and in high school all we did was study and uh people drank alcohol. And it was the beginning of rock and roll, but it was Elvis and uh, maybe Stevie Wonder things hadn't really taken off yet and uh the free speech movement in 61 in Berkeley kind of uh was the beginning of the ferment and um as north beat okay also the beats were in North Beach and in Greenwich Village in the 50s and they were critical of American culture and trying to um rant and rave about um, honesty and uh art or, and uh religious um meditation and you know Kerouac Ginsburg yeah and then the beatniks uh in san francisco were in the late 50s um i used to go to a thing called the party pad which was a big warehouse in north beach that big daddy eric nord used to run and um we would da- uh dance to elvis and i don't know a couple other uh musicians and, um on records Mm -hmm. That was in the mid-50s. And then North Beach was getting expensive and um, people were beginning to move out of North Beach toward the Haight-Ashbury. The Haight-Ashbury was central to San Francisco State, University of San Francisco, uh, UCSF Med Center, City College. So. And it had been a middle-class neighborhood like in the 20s and it, from the 90s, 1890s up into the 20s or 30s, but then it had gone downhill and was a very inexpensive, quiet neighborhood. And so a lot of uh students and artists began to move here in the, mid-60s and by 66 is when things began to sprout uh, up and uh, it was in concomitant with the the switch from alcohol to uh, marijuana and the use of psychedelics and mind expansion and that kind of the other uh center of uh and then there was Berkeley which was very much more oriented uh and began the peace movement actually, the anti Vietnam uh, war the uh, anti Vietnam um uh, parades and uh yes. protests. And they they kind of always thought, Oh, you hippies are doing nothing but getting high and um so one time there was this march from Berkeley, a peace march, from I think in 66, from Berkeley to Oakland. And when they got to the Oakland line, the Hells Angels had formed a line all across the street because a lot of them had been to Vietnam and were very pro-war. Right. And when the peace march got there, the Hells Angels said, you ain't going any further. And Ginsburg walked up and said, "Here, I want each one of you to try this." And he gave them each a, a tab um, cap of acid. And in 15 minutes, there were smiles on everybody's face. And then they said, "Okay, you guys can march down to Oakland now."
4: Wow! And
2: that's a famous story. <laughs> that's and um, okay, so uh, the 700 block is very interesting because. We were the first hippies to move here in March of 66. And in September 66, the Grateful Dead moved into 710 Ashbury, which is a few houses away from us. Across the street at 715, uh, a couple, a rich couple, Don and Paula McCoy, bought that and they owned the... Um, the Sausalito Heliport where uh, the Grateful Dead used to rehearse um, in 67 and 68 and they also owned Olimpali which uh, now is a public park but back then was a uh, their own private huge space and the dead lived there for a while also anyway when Don and Paula divorced Paula took the house at 715 and she started to date the president of the san francisco hell's angels and all of a sudden there were 30 hell's angels living across the street and bikes up and down the street and you didn't dare touch them because if you did your ass was in a sling because there was a black guy that lived next door to them who one day moved one bike and they all came running out and they beat the shit out of the guy and the next day he was in the hospital and the family moved away mm, so mm. there were some other unfortunate incidents um the hell's now were angels the grateful were dead not, still
0: were the grateful dead still living across the street at this point or oh they yeah the Donald?
2: grateful dead lived while this happened and uh wow so angels across, across the street were were not, and the grateful were dead not on not one the side an, the hell's angels were not the angels that were they were made out to be by the bands uh another incident that happened. Lenore Candell, the poetess. She and I had been in a um Israeli dance troupe in North Beach in sixty three, sixty-four, sixty-five. She and my wife, uh Hila, had been in this Jewish commie folk song hoot nanny group down in uh Hollywood, Venice in uh the um late fifties. And um Anyway, so she used used to make uh, jewelry for our gallery, and then all of a sudden she married this longshoreman dude, Bill Fritch, who was part of the Diggers. That's a whole other story. Oh, wow, yes. And then all of a sudden Bill Fritch became Sweet William, the vice president of the Hells Angels. So Sweet William, Bill Fritch, and Lenore, they moved into the... Uh, 715, where the Hells Angels were living. One day I was walking up Ashbury from my store, in gear and I see Lenore coming down the street, and she's got two fucking black eyes. And I say, Lenore, what happened? Bill beat the shit out of me. She Hmm. left that day. She never went back to that house again. She said, fuck, Jewish bitches do not take that kind of crap from anybody. You know, that's they're right. strong enough and that's enough. She only needed to get beat up once. For her. And that was the end of that marriage. Um anyway, so the Hells Angels uh before the Hells then the Hells before the Hells Angels actually were in there, the the building had been the offices for Halo, the Haight Ashbury Legal Organization, which was founded by Brian Rohan and Michael Stepanian and Mouse uh Stanley Mouse the artist he had a studio in there and then the dad had an office in there but then they got moved out when Paula and Don bought the place and then the Hell's Angels and then next door to them at 719 was Dottie Ivory. She was an older lady, black lady, that was a blues singer down in the Fillmore district. And she also owned 710 Ashbury, the house that, uh, that she was renting to the Grateful Dead. So, um, and then up the block, Frank J. Chorka. He's the guy that, you know, the fist, the, the raised fist that was on yeah, a lot I of fight the power. posters. Yeah, black yep. power, white, uh, Jewish power. White power, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the power. He, uh, made that famous. He lived up the block at 743 Ashbury. And, um, there were a couple of other dope dealers that lived in the middle of <laughs> 760 Ashbury. And, um, so anyway, there was, what a scene. Uh, there was a lot of activity going on here.
0: Or was everybody, like, well, paint us a picture of what a given, you know, given day would be like, I mean, was
2: everybody interacting together? Was, there, what was uh, No, 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 okay, no, uh people would interact down on Haight Street, you know, like Janice lived, Janice Joplin lived at 640 Ashbury, and the reason I saw her every day was the woman she was renting from, Bobby Brown, had a, uh, daughter of the same age as my daughter and they were both going to the Montessori school in Daly city and I was driving them out there. So I'd go over there every day and Janice was in her room and I'd say hi. And I had already met Janice the year before when I drove her home from a concert in Monterey and she used uh-huh. to come in. She used to come in to in year. She bought her white famous white fur hat from us. She bought a lot of her love beats from us scarves and she would come in every day so here's a little interaction one afternoon she comes in and she goes hey you know we're we're in the studio we're working on a second album but we don't like the artist that the record company gave us uh, to do the artwork and my wife goes yeah so well you know who I what I like I like this artist that did this poster that's being shown at the print mint and surround it's, it's called keep on trucking it's mr N- natural kind of marching down the street <laughs> i like that and that was our crumb that was one of his first uh, major public uh, posters and my wife said you know i know that guy i can introduce you to him so my wife put R. crumb together with Janis Joplin, Big Brother and the Holding Company. And that's how the album, Cheap Thrills, with all of that weird art on it, was created. And after that, they both were super famous. (laughs) That's
0: one of the more iconic uh, album covers of the 60s,
2: man. Yeah, and then after that, he came out with Snatch, Zap Comics, Jizz... (laughs) <laughs> um, uh, what else yeah the, those were the comics I have those in my library Phoebe
5: <laughs> it sounds like it sounds like Hyla was really doing a lot of really cool stuff and I heard you mention love beads in your store is that one of the things that she was in charge of like buying yes, different yes. materials
2: and picking she, things out yes yes. she she, um, she basically invented that and she uh, always oh, would buy the love beads basically yes because she wow. we, before the before the 60s we had a folk art gallery up in uh, Pacific Heights <clears throat> and we were buying and selling jewelry and beads and when we opened in gear we started having uh the neighborhood designers make clothing for us uh we had uh jewelers making earrings for us And one day Herb Kane, the famous um, gossip columnist for the Chronicle, San Francisco Chronicle, he wrote an article saying, last Saturday I walked into this store and I saw these girls making strings of beads. I think I'm going to call them love beads. And that's how Mm -hmm. that came about. Mm -hmm. And uh, he also kind of invented hippie because he he said, all those people in... uh, the hate ashbury they're not beat they're not beatniks and they're not hip they're hippies <laughs>
0: somewhere in between and
2: not a part yeah. at all <laughs> yeah and uh no my wife um also my wife d- d- didn't take shit from anybody uh here's a little interesting story <laughs> so one so every afternoon in 60 so George B. Leonard, who was an editor for Look, came here in early 67 to see what was going on. And he ended up taking acid and really loved it. And he wrote these two fantastic articles for Look. And this was right after The Human Being. And after that, the national media just went crazy with The Love Generation, Hate Ashbury. And um, all of a sudden we had... 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds showing up at 2 in the afternoon on a Tuesday. Well, (laughs) excuse me, you're supposed to be in school in Ohio, in Podom. What are you (laughs) doing here? So the cops started uh, doing sweeps every afternoon. And they would bring a paddy wagon, and they would just kind of amble down Haight Street real slow. Uh, Do they see anybody? And they... And one afternoon, they saw two young girls who were in our store, and my wife said, just keep your mouth shut. So the cop comes in, and he confronts the girls, and my wife said, would you please leave them alone? Those are my customers. And they say, how old are you? And the girls go, we're 14. Where are you from? We're from uh, Iowa. Okay, (laughs) come on with me. So he starts taking them out to put them in this old-fashioned-looking paddy wagon, and my wife was so pissed off, she ran out the front door and she started screaming, leave those girls alone. <laughs> Everybody came running out of their stores. What's going on? The cop was so embarrassed. He could have charged her with interfering with the rest, but he didn't dare. <laughs> she is intimidated. <laughs> oh, my God. So I go, would you come back in here, please? <laughs> Handled it so that was the end of that she handled that yes and um uh, what as um time went on what was happening before the acid became big a lot of people have been doing um speed Mm. and um Th- that was really big methamphetamine which, which was what like dex- like uh, pills speed pills or uh, well what? pills and stuff but also STP shoot- no oh, no not yet I don't think no no STP was something that uh, Osley invented and then he realized it was too strong and he stopped making it yeah um, uh, speed, was, speed was really no, on the scene with uh, the beats dextro- and the 50s dextroamphetamines oh yeah um, um, crystal meth and people were shooting that up, and with acid, a lot of people quit doing that mm-hmm. and then um uh, did, you the see, diggers, a lot, did you see a lot of prob-
0: did you see a lot of problems with speed with speed at that point like, uh, strung it, kind out.
2: Of, it kind of uh, burned out because people stopped using it, and yeah. uh what happened was uh, the diggers and some of the more Marxist oriented people began saying, Oh, we got to leave the city. We got to go to the country, back to the country thing. This was yeah. like in late, late 68. Uh, plus the diggers and Ron fell into the psychedelic shop. They had a, an event called Death of the Hippie where they, uh, got a flatbed truck, put a, um, a coffin on it and filled it with lots of paper money and they drove it down hate Street and that was called Death of the Hippie. And um so this back to the land movement, so a lot of people started moving out but also some of the big bands began using heroin, like for example, Big Brother and the Holding Company. Uh Gurley and his wife Nancy uh, she OD'd in '69 up on uh, the Russian River app, and, uh, and then Janice was already heavy into it. And um, huh. I think the dead, I think Jerry started uh, somewhere around '68, '69 doing heroin.
0: Was and it always a part? Was it was it always a part of the scene, or did you know? No, At a certain it was, point, when it came when it came in and it became acceptable socially. It came. Yeah.
2: It was. It became acceptable to higher ups, the band members, and some of okay. the dealers. But most of the people were not that interested in it. And I tried it uh, three times, and I, it was the most boring, uneventful drug that I could even imagine ever wanting to take. I mean, it wasn't the high, it was the low. And And after uh, acid,
0: which is so spectacular. Yeah, I
2: mean, um, so as people began to move out by 69, um, what happened was a lot of card sharks and uh, pimps started showing up from the Tenderloin and kind of trying to police the tourists who were coming to look at the hippies. And so things began to get a little ugly on the street. And by 71, every single hippie shop was gone and half of Haight Street was boarded up just the way it is now. Yeah. All boarded up. Um, and from '70 one till seventy six, Hate Street was basically dead, and it was only with the start of the Shady Grove, which was a restaurant with music, uh, that Pablo Hyzing started, and then he put on the first Hate Ashbury Street Fair in seventy eight. That was kind of the rebirth of the Hate Ashbury as a as a commercial street, mm-hmm. even though a lot of hippies were st- had still been in the neighborhood, the street turned into a mess from seventy from, from seventy to seventy six. It was nothing. It was just okay. miserable. So the first wave of the
0: summer of love really
2: came to. It seems like that that came to a close around nineteen seventy. The summer of love came to a close at the end of sixty eight. Some people, like Dennis McNally, claimed the real summer of love was nineteen sixty six. By 1967, it was the big commercialization of it. Uh, you know that—that's one intellectual approach mm-hmm. to it. I think everything was pretty interesting until uh-huh. um, '68, and then of wow. course, then there was Al. Uh, after uh, Altamont was after Woodstock. Yeah, so Woodstock happened. And, we decided we're not going to Woodstock. Well, what the fuck do we have to go there? We go to a film on the Avalon. We're not, we're not gonna bust our ass to go go, go there. That's right. So, um, were you
0: inter- were you interacting with any of the, the the you know the local bands at that point like the Grateful Dead? Did you uh, well, did you ever make like it up the, to Olin
2: Poly? Uh I um, the amplified Home played at Polly one Sunday afternoon. We jammed with Mickey Hart. Oh, tell us about that. And, uh, well, um, we heard that the band, uh, well, I think this was after they had uh, lived there, but there was a commune going on, and they were had Sunday afternoon jams. So we went there, uh, the band and my wife, and um, we went to the, upstairs room where the music was and uh, Mickey uh, was playing drums and uh, I played my vibraphone and my guitarist played the guitar we jammed for about an hour and then Owsley is running after this 16 year old girl and the next thing I know they're sitting on the couch and he's shooting her up with something and then she kind of passes out Mm. and then he wakes her up and I don't know they left (laughs) that, that was one of my encounters with Owsley Okay. Wow. Okay. And um, the diggers, they were trying to, um, they said, oh, we we want to free everything up. We want to give people uh, free food. And so they started ha- making, baking bread and giving it away at the panhandle every afternoon. And they would, they would dumpster dive at the supermarkets and get donations from uh, the produce market Um, pass out food to people. So one afternoon, evening, when HIP was having a meeting at in gear, they burst in. It was Peter Berg, who was the brains and Mr. Brilliant, and then Mr. Asshole Clown, Peter Coyote, whose real name is Peter Cohen, he comes in, and Bill Fritch was their bodyguard. They come in, and they stop the meeting, and they go, "Hey, you hippies, you're making, you hippies are making money off the, you merchants are making money off the hippies. You gotta pay us, because <laughs> <laughs> we're feeding them." So my wife goes, she whispers in my ear, "Ask them how much they want." <laughs> so I say, "How much do you guys need?" that was the president yeah and they go we need 75 dollars a month and my wife says to me tell them they can have it and get the fuck out of here <laughs> so i say you guys yeah. can have it my wife says get the fuck out of here here's the money <laughs> so that's how we dealt with the diggers and um anyway they had an interesting setup. They had a store called the Free Frame of Reference, where they got stuff donated and they gave it away for free. And the Free Frame of Reference was you uh, being yourself in—I don't know. Anyway, that's what it was called. Free Frame of Reference.
4: And hey, did you did
2: you ever? Be, oh, go ahead, please. Go on. I say, did you uh, ever end up meeting uh, Jerry back in back? In those times? Well, uh, we saw them every day because they'd come out of their house and we'd be coming out to go to the street. We'd say hi or something. And then in uh, September of 67, there was going to be a peace march all the way from Market Street up H Street to uh, Kesar Stadium. And, uh, Neil Young, Joan Baez, uh, Big Brother... I think Grateful Dead, we're going to play at it. So my wife wanted to do uh, an American uh flag window, but we had to be real careful because back then, if you use the flag to make clothes or if you burned it, of course, if you were a draft dodger, you were going to jail. But if you made clothes out of it, that was a big taboo, not the way it is today where you can use the flag any way you want. So she had some antique flags and stuff, and she said, ask Jerry for his hat for the window. So I, I went next door to the dead house and said, hey, Jerry, can we borrow the hat for the window? And that's how I got the hat. It was in our window for the display, and the Peace March went right by. Captain Tripp's top hat. Captain Tripp's hat, yep. And then afterwards, I said, hey, Jerry, we're taking the window down. You want to?" Come and get the hat. No, you guys keep it. How about that? And then when I saw him at Bill Graham's funeral at Temple Emmanuel, he goes, I said, Jerry, he said, I've been crying for a week. I said, Yeah, because you're not making the millions that Bill helped you make, right? And I didn't say that to him. <laughs> That's uh-huh. what he, I thought. He thought that, yeah. That's why he was crying. <laughs> I oh, he man. <laughs> I, he, I said, uh-huh well you know I still got the hat I'll just keep it would you and then in 87 when I was working uh, for Bill Graham um, at the Greek theater I saw him again backstage and I said hey Jerry what about the hat (laughs) keep it take care of it so that's then when he died I go holy shit I have that in my basement in the paper bag and I run downstairs and there it was it had been there for 50 years (laughs) yeah and then we uh auctioned it at christie's um, so uh the the whole this whole notion that uh hard drugs uh supplanted the acid that is a um a a medium myth kind of like i say uh what happened really was a lot of the serious people moved to the country they moved to uh Mendocino to Humboldt to New Mexico. So, a lot of the active artists and thinkers left the neighborhood. And, like I say, there also was a lot of um, petty crime on the street. It wasn't, re- you know, I think people like Joel Selvin in his book, yeah. uh, Summer of Love, and other. Writers try to always say, "Oh, is the heroin." The heroine. Well, the heroin—no one could afford the heroin. <laughs> you could get—you could get acid cheaper than you can get the heroin for. It was the bands that were doing the heroin, so oh, it wasn't—it wow. it, it wasn't really the people. It never and, took hold. The,
0: it never took hold in a major way, is what you're saying, on the street huh? back then. Uh,
2: it was no, it wasn't. It was, it was more, more like a high high status high status rock star yeah joke. yeah it it um it it, it, that, it that's kind of a um a myth that um i i like to um take apart because it it didn't really happen that way, but they always like to a lot of media writers like to always kind of um point point to that is uh, that was the end of the summer of love and stuff. Yeah.
5: It sounds like you guys did a lot of things as a community to kind of address that. It doesn't sound like the city of San Francisco is really able to resource or help everyone from like what i'm hearing from you is all of you guys pulled together in one way or another whether you were like part of hip or you were like a digger or like no matter how it just seems like everyone sort of played a part or played a role to kind of help the wayward kids and kind of really make a community out of it.
2: Yes, i think that's a good way of putting it. We uh that that's what it was until about 68 and then at, like i say as um People began to leave the neighborhood, um, and there was more tourists, and also, like I say, these sleazy characters coming from the Tenderloin to fleece the tourists, that's when the street became kind of ugly. But in the beginning, there was a a lot of community-oriented activity, like, for example, There was a professor of philosophy here, Stan McDaniel, who you will be interviewing soon. He's now retired. He taught at S. Sonoma State University for 30, 40 years. He came to me one day in uh, early 67. He says, all of these kids are coming here. We got to do something. I said, well, what do you want to (laughs) do? He said, well, every Saturday afternoon... Uh, starting at 4 o'clock, they would sweep the street, or more like around 8 o'clock, they would sweep the street from, uh, the cops would go from Masonic down to Stanyan looking for any teenagers or runaways. He says, we have to take our band, he was a co-founder of the Amplified Home with me, we got to take our band and we got to play music and get the kids off the street. So we went to, all Saints Church, which is an Episcopal church on Waller, between uh, Masonic and Ashbury, and we said Father Harris, and he was very pro hippie. Even he was bald, so he started wearing a long hair wig.
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so we said, Father Harris, we're the now we San and I are the council for the Summer of Love, and we would like to use the back house on Saturday nights and invite all the teenagers off of Haight Street to come and listen to music, and that way they won't get arrested. And he said, sure. So for about 10 months in 67, every Saturday night, we would print up flyers, distribute them on the street, say, come, free music, All Saints Church, don't get busted by the cops. And we had anywhere from 25 to 300 people there sometimes and um, then another one of the kids that came one night was from Nevada and uh, one Sunday morning I found him sleeping on my front steps (laughs) after the (laughs) concert and I said what's up well I needed a place to stay do you think you guys could come up to um, Virginia City and we're having a beer next week and I said okay we'll bring the band So my wife and uh, my daughter and my drummer and my guitarist, we all head up there. And we finally get down this little dirt road, and we're almost there. And then there's a uh, sheriff and four deputies, and they make a stop, and then they go, you can't go any further. I said, well, we're the band playing at the B-In. No, you're not turn around and get out of here. <laughs> uh, so we went back to Virginia City and we ended up at this very famous place where the first psychedelic bands played, the Red Dog Saloon. And we happened to meet the owner of it and told him we are a band. We were supposed to play at the be in and the sheriff kicked us out. He said, well, you can play here and stay at my house tonight. So we played at the Red Dog Saloon and then we drove down to his house and stayed there overnight. So you, 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 the
5: sheriff, <laughs> you stayed at his house. Yes. That's incredible.
2: <laughs> yeah. And, okay. Here's another well, the, one. Uh, yeah, the Red Dog now, Saloon is legendary. want to hear a
5: legendary? Of...
2: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we and, do want to hear. Come on, man. What do you got? No, no, this is off the. I have topic. These are a couple of things that you don't want to put on the, on the thing because they're too <laughs> weird. Um, okay, the guitarist had... I'll snip it out. My, my guitarist was older than all of us. He had been a beatnik artist in North Beach in the early 60s and he had, used to make Speed and then he got busted. When he got out of prison in 64 he found a doctor in the Mission District who would write him a script and then he went to the local pharmacy and would buy desoxin And then at that point, the desoxin was in these plastic um tablets so that you couldn't uh dissolve them and shoot them up. But he figured out if you soak them and then squish them, you can get the drug out of it. Mm-hmm. So that's what he was doing. So anyway... He was still shooting up all the time and the next day when we were coming back from um Virginia City he was gonna go see his parole officer and he had to take a piss test. So he asked one of the guys in the band to give him <laughs> a vial of his piss and he made and he finagled a little bag and ran a tube under his penis and then <sighs> He told the guy, "I gotta go. I I can't pee in front of you." So he we went into the john and he pissed the other guy's piss in there so he wouldn't test negative uh, positive.
0: <laughs> oh man! He, so he was the first. He was probably the
2: first like fake piss test uh, oh, in, in history, man. That's fantastic. Yeah. I have one other story born. about psychedelics. So I was at that time in '66. I was teaching the professor of philosophy. Uh, the Head of the Philosophy Department at San Francisco State College, Jacob Needleman, I was teaching in biblical Hebrew, and uh, he came to hear uh, the Amplified ohm play a couple of Saturday nights at All Saints Church, and he was very impressed, so he was teaching a course on um religious experience, and he wanted uh to have us come and play for the students so they could see what a psychedelic experience was like. So 8 o'clock in the morning, we had to show up out at San Francisco State University. And we walked in the classroom, brought our instruments, and he says, okay, this is a psychedelic band. I want you to listen (laughs) to it. So we played for an hour, and they were all... Eyes wide open and (laughs) and you couldn't say a damn thing. And then we said, okay, guys, we'll see you later. (laughs) (laughs) That's That's what you did best. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Go
0: for it, Laura.
5: Well, wow. I mean, this is just like incredible, but I was wondering, like you know during that time, what were your feelings about l s d like it was kind of new, and people really didn't know what it was, and it was kind of underground you know now it's like uh there's research on it, and everyone's heard of it, but there was like a time where it was really something really brand new. What was that like
2: well um well for one, yes, it was very much frowned upon by the establishment and many uh prof- many professors of um chemistry and various doctors were all saying this will uh damage you and this is no good and um it'll bring out bad experiences and on and on and on. And uh, what well, all we could fathom from that is that when we tried it, <laughs> it was a mm. amazing, beautiful experience. Especially if you had someone on your first trip who explained and went with you and guided you through that first experience, mm. and um, now. Things have come full circle and um people are seeing that there is actual real possible psychological psychoanalytic uses for it under controlled circumstances with a therapist. I mean I'm also into using it as a an enjoyment and an artistic and, and in doing my art like whenever matthew and i play i always microdose or sometimes i go beyond microdosing <laughs> at my birthday party i was way out there <laughs> yeah. but um back then um we, just as we had figured out well there's nothing wrong with There doesn't seem to be anything wrong with marijuana so We thought, okay, we'll try the LSD, and then we found out there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with it either. (laughs) However, uh, uh, and also, we were beginning to become very anti-alcohol, whereas today it seems that the young people are very much into alcohol, marijuana, and ecstasy more than they are into psychedelics. Mm. Somehow um, because the ecstasy, because it's more of a speed that allows you to go to a rave and dance for 10 hours and then you get lovey-dovey and you just want to fuck anybody two inches away from you. But you may not even give a shit about them. So the whole thing is kind of an empty experience. Mm. And uh, it probably is better used as a uh, therapeutic device with a therapist because it does open up, um, it does remove that layer of ego that we all have constructed as we grow up from our societal input yeah but as a party drug i find it very inferior to lsd or mushrooms or mescaline very mm. inferior mm. um because it's more it's really more of a speed than it is a psychedelic a psychedelic yeah. has that feeling of uh energy but it also has that feeling of wonderment and uh, okay. enlightenment and uh, well-being. And um I think the ecstasy and the alcohol go together better. And then that yeah. kind of clouds like the Burning Man. If you go to Burning Man, I think there's more ecstasy at Burning Man than psychedelics. And if you ever go to Burning Man, as a couple, you will not come back as a couple. So don't go there I've, as a couple. I've heard that. In fact, yeah. don't go to Burning Man. Don't go at all. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah like deserts.
2: But you no, know yeah know. I've I, never I, been there but every story yeah. I've heard makes me go I'm never going to Burning Man. Oh yeah man. Well you're not missing anything you haven't seen. I know, I know. Mound girl has been there and <laughs> Oh, she loves it. She she go every year. Yeah, well, she probably just hangs with her crowd. But I've known three made couples who were major couples, Oh. and they when destroyed. they came back, boom, oh, it was baby. over.
0: Oh, jeez. Well, that reminds me of the of the sexuality of the time. I mean, is it true the things you hear about the I don't know the different experimental forms of that men and women are, are trying to relate to each other in. Through the psychedelic what? experience i mean just oh. how did
2: the psychedelics
0: color sexuality at that time
2: um well i i think if you figured out how to do it at the right moment in the high <laughs> it, it could be That's very right very at. enlightening um <laughs> um the at, the sexuality was very very loose at that time um Mm. Let me just say that um I went to a number of parties where um, <laughs> I had an involvement. <laughs> Don't worry, this is an rated I bar- podcast. I barely, I barely knew, but had a good feeling for. And my, so my wife and I had an open relationship, but when she said it was closed, it was closed. Yeah. Boom. When It was open. It was open. She That's the only it. way it would work, man. Yeah, she was the only. She was the only one that could open and close the door. The I could keep her. I, I wasn't the to penis. Open and close the door. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> we were married. Her. For, you had to get through her to get to we you. We were. Honey. We were together for 49 years. That's beautiful. Yeah. Congratulations.
5: <laughs> That's amazing.
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, it says something to the staying power of psychedelics and free love, I suppose.
2: Wait, let me... Oh, hold on. Sure. I, go ahead. Oh, yeah, go ahead, Laura. Huh? Oh, yeah.
5: I mean, that's just incredible that... It's just incredible. It sounds like you guys were just, like, um, incredible, like, artists and stuff. How did you guys um, go from, like, a clothing gallery and gear to an art gallery?
2: Well... Uh, when we had our first gallery, which was a folk art gallery from sixty two to sixty eight, it was on the Visadero Street up by Pacific Heights. My my wife had when she was in uh LA City College, she was studying jewelry making. She had a small little gallery on Melrose Avenue before it took off back in like fifty six and she sold jewelry and several artists used to sell their art there and then when we came back from um Harvard and I was teaching at the College of Jewish Studies and she was pushing a baby carriage at the mm-hmm. park she goes hey I'm getting sick of this shit <laughs> so <laughs> So we opened up our first gallery and we had a space in the back of the gallery where we had a crib and she could change the baby. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, we, we had, uh, a, several very famous artists. Um, she knew Sister Mary Corita, who was this Catholic nun from Immaculate Heart College in LA, who uh, later left the order, who was a, um, Used to do these silk screens very much like a Kenneth Patchen thing where she had poetry and art on a, on the, on the, um, prints that she did. We used to represent her and sell her prints. And then we sold, um, we had, um, different textile artists, Lillian Elliott and, um, Helen Durbin, we used to sell their art and we had ceramicists, um Michael Frimkis, um, and let's see Ron Nagel, who's uh from the Art Institute, he was in the band The Mystery Trend, and now he's the head of the San Francisco Tape Music Center over at Mills College. We used to sell his uh ceramics and my wife would Design stuff and have different artists make for her and then so when we opened in gear, it wasn't just clothing; it was clothing that she either designed or allowed the girls to design on their own and she um and she was always buying and collecting art and um so and she's she was a good artist herself, she had a fantastic eye. Mm. She just saw right through. She saw right through people, and she saw mm. right through to the gold. <laughs> oh man! Yeah, you, were, you, were, a you man. were blessed. You were blessed for
0: her. She sounds like a really exceptional woman. Yeah. What what um what role did psychedelics play in your relationship? I mean, did,
4: did, did, did they play
0: um, well, an active role in in your yeah? As you grew through the years, or how did they help you?
2: Um. Well. Um, We used to do them together. Uh, We sometimes, um, when uh, the band played up in my attic, the Amplified Home, we would all take acid, or a lot of times on New Year's, we would take acid and then play at midnight. Um, We would often take acid and have sex, and... did you feel like it served your intimacy,
0: just your emotional intimacy, and 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 help you to, you know?
2: It just... it did. Um, for a while there, someone had turned her on to ecstasy, and then she, one night we were sitting around, and she had taken some, and I had, and she started getting kind of um um wanting to be intimate, and I'm going, well, wait a minute. You're just acting from the drug. You're not acting because the other day she wasn't anywhere near where she was that night on the drug. So I'm going, wait a minute. This is coming from the ecstasy and it's it doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. So I I don't know. I may have been stupid or not. (laughs) (laughs) She would have fucked your brains out for sure, man. I acted like Mr. Big and said, I don't want to. (laughs) <laughs> but right. you know, uh sometimes you can be stupid in your br- in br- stupidity is one of the features that man is stuck with, okay? <laughs> heard <your
5: heart>? yeah. <laughs> I heard you mention you had a place up in um, Mendocino and I know you were talking about yes. you know all the people in, like the hate um some of them started moving out. Like I was thinking about like Morningstar Ranch, um and you know, Black Bear and things like that. Did you see like a lot of the people um kind of do both? Like uh kind of have a little bit in the country and then a little bit in the city, or was everything Well no. In- a lot
2: of most people moved out to the country but When we, uh, in 74, we finally had everything packed up here at the house and we rented the house out. So we took the, the girls were like 12 and six at that time. So we were going to school them up there. So for two years we ate and cooked and gathered. We had pear trees and apple trees and did the whole thing and the snow and the, burned out furnace and the uh, frozen uh, water pump and had to go down to the creek to get the water and boil it and all of that shit. (laughs) But basically we got very bored with the monk style of life and so we were glad we still had the San Francisco uh, abode and we had a garden apartment so we were able to be a house rented, and we were then going back and forth between the garden apartment and the ranch, and then, um, we fully moved back to the city. We just got too bored up in the country. I mean, we both were our city people. We just, it just, you know, um, sometimes I could go up to the ranch and in five minutes I was ready to leave because all I needed to do was kiss the 500-year-old tree and it's time to go. (laughs) You know, I'm already, I I discharged all the the bullshit and I'm ready to come back and get some more. (laughs) (laughs) Right on, right on. Oh, my God. We'll, we'll hey, see I'm so sure you're yeah. going to edit what? this shit, aren't you? Yeah. No, yeah. Well, no, <laughs> we're, li- we're,
0: actually, we're actually live. I Oh, I didn't tell you we were live?
2: Oh, we're live? Yeah. Oh, shit. About Hello, everybody. Every million
0: people. Hey. We <laughs> get around for CD everybody. Okay. All
2: right. Ask well, hey, me, well,
0: okay. ask me yeah, some yeah.
2: serious questions.
0: No. Okay. Yeah. Well, I don't think there's such a thing around here, but we'll do our best. So, okay. We, this episode, we were discussing, Laura and I were talking about, the way that we've seen the drug world change over the course of our lives, you know, and you know really from the nineteen early nineteen nineties until until now, what is your perception? I mean, you have a much longer arc in which you've you've observed and you know to different degrees participated. How would you describe the evolution and well i think feel, how do you feel about quite, where we are today?
2: Well, I think it's quite amazing that uh there are so many. University medical schools, Harvard, Johns Hopkins, University of California now have actual psychedelic programs, a whole building devoted to uh, researching the use of psychedelics as a therapeutic device. This is amazing. Right, Did you, you ever totally imagine that? Did you ever imagine that? I never that could... know. I mean, no. All the doctors were going, "This is wrong, this is wrong I mean, mm. two years ago um I went to see one of my i won i can't get too personal. Okay. One of my practitioners had been to a maps meeting and and when I saw him for uh, my medical situation, he goes, can you get me some ecstasy <laughs> and um, I got. I can get you some good acid, but I don't. I can't. I don't have any. Ex- can you get me some acid? <laughs> so I managed to secure some for him, and um, I was just amazed that this guy would. Ask, he was a professor at a medical school, and he's asking me to help him. <laughs> Had to turn him on, man. Look at that. And so that was a few years ago, but I think now. All of these uh, universities are just moving, just moving ahead very fast. And it's just amazing. And um, when I, okay, I spent 30 years on cocaine, okay, on and off for 30 years. Mm. And every time I took a break and did an acid trip? I go on. Holy shit! What am I wasting my time with uh-huh. this Nazi drug? Where I'm <laughs> getting high for two minutes when I can take a drug and be high for a whole day? Yeah, baby. And experience some real insight. Uh, um, and then you go back to the stupid, uh-huh. nut, the stupid drug, because the, the, the stupid the, drug, the stupid drug, has a interesting way of. Making itself appear to you to be interesting when it's stupid, mm, mm. and it's not interesting. It's stupid. <laughs> you heard it here. You heard it here, people.
0: Yeah. Would you credit psychedelics
2: with with helping you get off cocaine? Um, it always gave me the insight that I could get off. And what? There's three ways that I used to get off of. Of being addicted. One was run out of drugs and there was no wrong. The second was run out of money. Oh, <laughs> and the geez. third was to do a taper, which I never bothered to do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Cuz a taper was the correct way to do it. All the others caused problems. Mm. And uh thankfully I haven't been involved with any stupid drugs for the last 25 years 30 years 30 years on and 30 years off how's that fantastic congratulations man
0: Yeah. (laughs)
5: yeah this is just amazing um i it's like i'm really thinking so much about you know um how different San Francisco is now today than it used to be, what are some of the things that you've noticed um changed the most? like how do you think about San Francisco now like well
2: um, like I tell people who okay here all right, people come and they go well there's nothing there's no more hippies or anything I say you know if you look around and you look carefully, you will find that there are people around here that still carry um spirit and okay I'm 84 and some of the musicians I play with are 44 and how did that happen they found me because they moved to the neighborhood and so they looked around and they found some old fucking hippies who had some ideals
4: yes. uh, and
2: uh, so there is still things happening, but of course there's also the big tech um, development, uh, you know, all of Facebook. I mean, Zuckerberg lives just over the hill.
5: Yeah, I noticed like how the art and culture and music that used to be so abundant and free, it feels like the artists, you know, they're not necessarily rich enough to always afford everything. Have you noticed like a... Uh, well, a yeah, day? a
2: lot of them have had to move over to Oakland and now all of a sudden Oakland is more expensive than San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, there, there's still a lot going on in the city. I, I, you, you, you can't go by the um, media reports You know, everybody moving out of San Francisco, every, the rich are here under that. It, it's a mix it, and it's different. And, um, it's, it's hard to explain. Uh, okay. Uh, one, here's, here's an interesting, uh, note. Uh, when we were going to open in Gear in 1966, I used, before that I used to go hang out in North Beach on Grand Street, Grand Street at this, um, gallery, um, that Abram Rubenstein, he had been a professor of mathematics and then he quit Berkeley and, uh, became a painter and he had a storefront gallery and I used to hang out with him and one night this uh, jazz writer from the Chronicle famous guy Grover Sales he was there and a couple other people and said hey guys uh, my wife and I are going uh, gonna to open up a, a store on hate Street and they go Hate Street? Hate Ashbury? It ain't never going to last. Mm-hmm. Well look at North beats. There are no beatniks or beats or anything in there anymore. And the hate something and as bad as hates became there's this thing that draws people. That's why I call it mm-hmm. the magical mystical vortex. And don't ask me to explain it because I don't have an explanation. <laughs> but it's been um since sixty five since sixty four it's been drawing people to it and it hasn't stopped. So I don't know how to explain that. Mm-hmm. And um Okay. Yeah. I got one for
0: you. I got one Go for ahead. you. So is there so now you, you know we're having this new burgeoning wave of of a of a second psychedelic renaissance. You know, we we're really kind of at just the, the doorstep of it. And what do you, like, what would you, what do you want the people of this next wave, you know, the new generation that are just now turning on and the people who will be moving this forward into, really, to mainstream, you know, integrating it into businesses? What, if you could impart something to them, uh, that you felt essential to the ethics of it, what would, what would it be? Do you have a, well,
2: mind? I think someone has to write a manual that,
3: explains
2: when and how to use these psychedelics, when it's appropriate to use them, when it's appropriate to microdose. I mean, because you can't just uh, make them legal and then just let anybody get (laughs) whatever they want. And you have people falling down, uh, uh, feeling bad or feeling good, and then feeling bad. I mean, there has to be a manual of how to navigate this because it took all of us. I mean, without Leary's uh, Book of the Dead and explanations from him, it wouldn't have been that easy for people to start taking psychedelics. Mm and what's the form good. what's the formula for that what's the
0: basic formula? well
2: i don't know i'm not, uh i
0: mean set setting did you did you emphasize integration we've been talking a lot about that between
2: us well it set setting and dosage
0: well we got cut off, there, oh, so but, cut off
1: there but hey hey
0: what did you think about that what were uh, some of the things you gathered is...
1: well you know it it i kind of took so much away from it and as you just heard from you know the interview this is just what a rich incredibly insane and brilliant and vibrant person, right? (laughs) Like, it's hard to believe. Yes, he's just like insane. And, you know, uh, like some of my stories about how, you know, I arrived in the 1990s into San Francisco for the first time, and how uh, surprised I was by that. And it's like that generation of people made so many things in their community to help people,
0: right? That, That was really striking to me.
1: It's... Like, like that,
0: you know, like how he was talking about that one point, he was like, him and his friend were like, hey, all these kids are just don't they have a place to go after dark. Let's fix that.
4: Yeah. Right? Like that, like, that, like, that kind of, that kind of just natural so social
0: much. responsibility that they would just not just go back to their own little apartment and go "Oh, too bad for them. But like, let's figure out a scene for these kids so everyone can hang out. And oh, how so, organically
1: oh. it developed, right? Yeah, now yeah. all these things, you have to get permits and go through this and that and start a nonprofit. And there's just so much to things, right? But they just had that kind of uh, psychedelic mindset of just make it happen, right? And to and me, just, that's that like natural, a huge takeaway.
0: That natural sense of responsibility for each other.
1: And, you know, the, and the possibility of actually making it actionable.
0: Right. 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 And like in that situation what they do they went I think they went and talked to some hip pastor who was like, "Oh, they could you guys could use my chapel or whatever." And then they hooked it up and it became a thing for a while. It's... Like like that, you know, like how he was talking about that one point he was like, "Him and his friend were like, "Hey, all these kids are just don't they have a place to go after dark. Let's fix that." Yeah. Like right? like that, like that, like that kind of that kind of just natural so social much. responsibility that they would just not just go back to their own little apartment and go. Oh, too bad for them. But like, let's figure out a scene for these kids so everyone can hang out. I know for me, it's something that I, I really took note of was how he. There was this idea that heroin and harder drugs can't kind of came in and and soiled, you know, the 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 innocence of this kind of psychedelic bucolic society. But but that really, he said that wasn't the case. He he said that there was it was really always there, but it was kind of more rock star drug. Only they could afford it you know but I, apparently speed was present the whole time you know and even and even got less so when acid came in because people naturally kind of straightened up in a different way when they were turning yeah. on yeah what did you think what stood out to you yeah i yeah. love that yeah and then even like the all the free movement stuff like all the free the free store the free <laughs> metal, you know medical care um, yeah, and some stuff. of those
1: things even exist, like, you know, not only when I was there in the 90s, but they're even in existence today, right? Yeah, the
0: what, the clinic is still there.
1: Yeah, right? and, you know, all of those kind of things. And uh, if I were to have, like, a, you know, a takeaway or something, it's that it's really possible to make change, right? Mm-hmm. It's really possible to actually not just have an idea or have some lofty feelings that you can make a difference in your community or make a difference in people's lives, but hey, don't just sit around and think about it or talk about it. You can actually just get in there and just start doing it. Yeah. And I feel like uh, that generation really did that in a way that no other generation before had done it just like that. I mean, it was completely unique to that hate Ashbury is so much of that happening at like one time, right? (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. It was kind of like, it wasn't, it seemed like this congruent, like this, you know, this conflux of these different variables, like, you know what I mean? The time and the place, the geography, the mentality, you know, that particular level of freedom and, you know, being able to like get a flatbed truck and find someone's apartment who would plug your cord in and play a concert on an afternoon to whoever showed up
1: for free you know,
0: for free. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, how special is that? I, I interviewed a little clip of, of Phil Lesh from a, some years ago. We we're, we're having a brunch for charity and he was talking about uh, how they got started playing free in the park and how that was one of his favorite things, but how it can never hap- He you know, it could never happen these days because of just the logistics of insurance and all the different hassles. Um, so, you know, some of that stuff was really, I think, unique to the the state of our country and the state of the laws. You know, I mean, acid wasn't even illegal for probably the best part of the 60s, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's amazing to just try to think about how much the city has changed uh, since that time. History is really deep and rich, but there is no denying that the 60s and Haight-Ashbury in that time is forever kind of just embedded in yeah. the story of San Francisco, right? and America And, Ameri- and, Ameri-
0: and I'm in America, you know, it is, it, is a, it is just such a pinnacle chapter of, of what is Americana, American culture, you know, you, America's unique cultural imprint on the world. And I'm quite proud of it as a Californian. It's a, it's a really, really rich history.
1: Yeah, so when you see somebody who's, like, really witnessed that entire life cycle, right, it's really – and then still – sees all the beauty and art and is still making the music and the art that's just beyond you know that's like uh, as, as great as it gets oh and yeah it completely inspires me to just know that like you you just can't ever stop <laughs> stay, right? the,
0: stay the course
1: stay the course that's
0: yeah. right ride or die man
1: <laughs> forever yeah
0: lifers
1: <laughs> and, and yeah, and I feel like, um, one of the things that, you know, can be really hard when, you know, you've got like addiction or you're struggling with a lot of these things in the city is really hard because mm, it's one yeah. thing if you live in like a rural, isolated community where you're right. in <laughs> or you're yeah. Alabama or wherever you are. I mean, the drugs are there. You'll find them, Hope but, so. but a city is insane because. It really, literally, can be everywhere.
0: That's right. Yeah, I had to actually. I. I I would. I never let it go so far as to ruin my relationship with San Francisco because it's so special to me. But I, for a time, I had to really lose some numbers and just stay, stay out of the city because there was just too many, too many, you know, dark temptations with hard drugs there. That that was just so easy to come by. And, uh, you know, I couldn't actually be down there just the way I I work and the people I knew. I couldn't be down there and not be around it for a time. So I did change that up, though, and I'm really happy because now I can be a part of that city still and not have to deal with those kind of temptations.
1: Yeah, well, like, Hate Ashray isn't even the the center of that, right? So... (laughs) Uh, the oh it was just a, a well
0: it was just a funk yeah funk right the tenderloin fr- is
1: so crazy so, <laughs> oh, man. so I, never, my uh, partner lived I've only walked on the corner of turk and, turk and taylor right <laughs> like 111 taylor the... after you know coming out of um incarceration he was in the halfway house stuck in turk and taylor so oh, we would always fuck. have to like, go down there and i'm telling you i went down to the tenderloin uh dude it's it's rife it's crazy it's gotten so yeah it's gotten so out of control like it literally is um on it's unimaginable Mm, mm, mm. and one one of the things that that um they're really working on in san francisco is trying to maybe have uh some safe places for like uh kind of just a harm reduction yeah
0: like a place people can go use use drugs with like medical staff nearby and
1: yeah right, and get cleaned
0: up and get clean needles and
1: and find some ways to really deal with it because it's a really yeah human, it's overwhelming yeah yeah and it, it and the the answers to that are really challenging in a city. I mean, how how many square miles is San Francisco? Like seven, 800, many, 700, I think it's seven square.
0: seven square miles. Yeah. yeah.
1: And then it's a city of like maybe 800,000 people or something. Is that about? I'm not
0: sure. sure. we we'll have to more. fact
1: check this stuff. Yeah, definitely fact check. <laughs> right? Don't hold us to the numbers, Yeah, people. don't hold us. Although I'm
0: pretty sure about the seven miles.
1: Yeah. And, and, and in that, you know, you're going to have so much. Disparity and so much craziness. And uh, one of the things that I think the Hate Ashbury has done and so well is to maintain its character and uh, maintain its inclusiveness and welcomeness despite all the changes that go around. Yeah, that's a great point.
0: Yeah, it hasn't been overtaken by the homeless, you know.
1: Yeah. So I think, like, you know, one of the things about I Hate Ashbury is it had one of the first, like, um, free clinics, right?
0: Yeah, right. And, was, and, the Diggers kind of had a hand in that,
1: right? Yeah. The they original. were, yeah, I think that's amazing, you know. And it was born in the time when that whole summer of love, right? Yeah. And I think it transformed the first ideas of, at least, like, uh, as far as I know, drug addiction treatment right? And that's how right. that happened. And, and, uh, and bad
0: trip, bad trip outreach.
1: Yeah, exactly. And uh, I think uh, UCSF doctor started something started it, which is like pretty amazing that that is still in existence today.
0: That's right. Yep. And that's one of the key architects that, that we, we spoke with tonight. And yeah, I got a lot of respect for the diggers. I mean, I ended up living in a commune
4: up, yes you up did. In yeah so that was
0: digger that was digger land man but oh, they yeah. you know they bought it it was up in Siskiyou county black bear ranch still there to this day i mean and you can fucking go there and it was um basically they bought it in a way where on the land deed there's no one owner it's like literally forever will be for the people by the people and if you you can go there and if you're you know you're cool to everybody and there's an empty cabin which there are many because it's an old mining town you can just say, oh, I like that cabin. I'm going to move in and just move in. That's what I did <laughs> for like a year. Yes. <laughs> Not quite even a full year. Yeah.
1: Yes. And it's so it's so amazing. It's so uh, beautiful there. And it's so polar opposite of being downtown in the city. Right. Yes.
0: Yes. It's <laughs> very remote. Very remote. It is and- way the fuck out there on a dirt road, many, many, you know, miles down a dirt road. And, and, but it has that digger's ethos. It was, it's really the main house. I'll never forget it. It was like, there's main one big main house that everyone kind of gathers in for meals. There's a big kitchen there. And they had a, there's a room upstairs that was a, like clothes and it was just like clothes. So you just help yourself. There's boxes and boxes of clothes, decades of clothes. And then there was another room that was all, a library like books and instruments and it was yeah. the same kind of trip like leave one take one you know um didn't cost any money we would pass a hat around and you could pitch them what you could but the only rule it was actually a little too loose if you ask me i think in the end that's like not really i think it was missing some <laughs> a certain something that kind of makes your shit got done because i mean we just got high a lot and they just hung around naked and just everyone was fucking and it was just like very free you know and it was and the only rule was uh Uh, Don't sit naked on the countertops.
4: Yeah, and, that's a good you, rule you to can,
0: have. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I gotta say it's a good rule. It, but it was the only rule, though. That when you couldn't grow grass there, uh, and that was those are literally the only two rules. And because of that, like a lot didn't get done, but it had so much potential. I mean, there was guard, big gardens that could have, you know, that were overgrown and
1: yeah, so gorgeous uh, goat, goat right? pens and, and yeah, you've been and, you've been out there, right? Yeah, right? and everything's just like, like you just you know, built over was? time and stuff, right? So like very hand built, very, very funky, ha- cool. Yeah, taking like old, it was an old old mining right old like, gold, old gold mining town yeah and then it gets turned into like so it's really crazy because it was like actually a town, mm-hmm. and then it got turned into all the different buildings <laughs> probably so,
0: like a dozen different like like cabins, st-
1: structures, you know, and, and then and, barns
0: and then like a main house, and yeah. And you can like see little...
1: everyone's like creativity, right? Because mm-hmm. there's like, oh, let's build like you know, kind of a place for like a sweat, let's build a place let's for like you know everything. And so it's just got its like handprint of everybody's life, just you know, there. all around yeah. it. But what it really comes Comes down to is that those uh counterculture roots and ethos born out of that hey ashbury time era
0: yeah very much so and that was the thing is people would turn on in the city you know turn on with psychedelics and discover these simpler values for how they wanted to model their life you know close to nature and and away from materialism and money and, and of, of group living and and I gotta say though, I, I've seen the same there's a few examples of this in Northern California that I've seen up close. And yeah, I know you have too, Laura. There's I think of the hog farm. Yeah. And then I and I think of Black Bear Ranch. And I will say there's the hog farm out of all of them, I think is probably the most impressive in its cohesion all these years later. And there's still original members that live there and haven't left and they all have their homes and and there and they've raised families, you know, now they have grandchildren and um I think is more the exception and I know I've studied different intentional communities in America since the 60s, what kind of the trajectory they all followed and there's a common arc that I think is a real it really speaks to human nature and something to be noticed and embraced and that was, you know, they were experimenting with with sharing everything in the 60s and, and, you know, really recognizing each of us as equal, you know, brothers and sisters before one cosmic creator and, and that, you know, every man, you know, every woman was every woman and every, you know what I mean? And so there was like this, this ethos of free love, which was, you know, where every woman is, is the goddess and, you know, every man is, is God. And, and, and um, experimenting with letting go of all those different kind of natural forms of that humans tend to relate in and build nuclear families. In. And, and um, what I noticed at black bear, especially is, there was a time when everyone was really experimenting with that and and I was too at the, at the time but then what happens is people as time goes on people tend to want to pair up um and they have their own children and then become these family units that then would move away from the community so they weren't sharing everything so they so they had some privacy for their family but would live close to each other so that like all the old school black bear- you know, folks, they all live around Black Bear, but yeah. they have their own properties. And and then, and then they come in together and have <laughs> yeah. potlucks, but they're not yeah. like, you know what I mean? Like all sleeping in the same room and everybody's eating Like it just, it was this balance of privacy and also shared. And I think that was a really good thing to pay attention to because I know I, you know, even just after a year was coming up to the, you know, against the natural th- obstacles humans come up against if you're sharing your partners and you're sharing, you know, it just... I don't know. It's different for everybody. And I understand it. I just don't think humans are are evolutionary. Like, we're not caught up yet to really live that. It's a very psychedelic vision to do that. And I get it. It's like a place of total unity. But I think humans still have a lot to clean up in their own karma and their own emotions. And, you know, and and some of that stuff you don't even need to try to shake, you know, it's okay to be really, you know, into your partner and don't want to share her or him, you know, I mean, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You don't have to try to dose that impulse out of you you know what i mean um
1: yeah, yeah, so I, I definitely think that the free love ethos of like the early hate and all of these people yeah definitely came up against some roadblocks you know over, that just seemed over... intrinsic to the human yeah right? yeah exactly
0: and people try to shake it but you know jealousy catches up and diseases and all that stuff you know what
1: i mean so yeah, it can be uh, even challenging. I, I was cracking up in the interview because uh, Stevie <laughs> was talking about, you know, I hugged a tree and I had to get right back to the city, right? right. I, I think, you know, it's like... He was if, a city cat. Yeah. <laughs> and I was just thinking, like, that has its own whole entire, like, social structure, <laughs> just of like, that's human interaction on a level that, like, you don't necessarily get in a isolated hmm. community right i see it's, why he it, loved it yeah the right.
0: culture there's electricity there. and
1: people and like it's kinetic and you're just always interacting with people like constantly right it, i mean you can stay in your house and like have moments of like privacy and isolation sure. but you're just like out and about and there's a lot of people and a lot of different kinds of people it's like sometimes the city is so electric yeah
0: it is so electric so yeah. i always love to live it in Humboldt because it's been such a balance a perfect balance for me like because i you know I don't want to live in that i really want the peace and this expansiveness of nature really raw form around me but you know about every every week or two i just start feeling like i need a little dose of some real city electricity and it's just you know, five hours boom you're down there in the middle of it until you you know, I'd usually last about two or three days and then I'd be re- really ready to get back to the trees. <laughs> well, <know? laughs> yeah, the
1: nights are so different, right? Like the nights yeah. in the country are like stars and like all of this kind mm, of stuff. But mm. the nights in the city, there's stars out, but everything there's a whole different element <laughs> that comes to life you know it's always th- there's like there's like and it's not just like the cliche of nightlife like there's <laughs> literally like a whole entire world <laughs> that happens to oh, people man. that just like work at night you know for the yeah. city and like do things and yeah. <laughs> just um <Yeah.
0: laughs> wait, I just you know what you're talking what you're saying that I'm just flashing on like countless amount of great Moments we've had at shows down there.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, like
0: we you guys. I mean, really, like yeah, Laura and I and like our whole crew and stuff. We so many wonderful, <laughs> just fucking hilarious, like <laughs> just stoned antics, like coming out of like the Bill Graham Civic or something like two in the morning, you know, for <laughs> the hotel across the street. Oh my god!
1: <laughs> yeah, you Some just, really
4: great shit.
0: You
1: don't know what's gonna happen <laughs> <laughs> or who you're gonna run into, and I, I think that's kind of like the magic of like a city environment is you definitely cannot predict like the next thing that's gonna happen.
0: <laughs> it, was, it was very friendly to taking drugs. I yeah. Thought- I mean you just walk around that place is fucking lit to the your lit to the kills and you just kinda you just kinda blend right in with all the with all the just absurdity, you know.
1: That's kind of why, hey, Ashbury is amazing because it's almost like the beginning of like a freak show in a way, like a circus, like, you know, theatrics, like not only were there like literal theatrical groups, like the San Francisco Mime Troupe or something, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. people literally used to get in buses, tour buses and pay to drive by <laughs> and like hippie watch. <laughs> that's right like just how insane is that right like it was almost and then there'd like be a head the...
0: there'd be a head holding a mirror like running running alongside the bus you know Yeah. I
1: mean, just... <laughs> just, uh, really you know... just
0: good shit creative shit like that
1: yeah exactly and so they still
0: have events don't they laura i mean i think now that hopefully you know the pandemic is is, is fading away and like the cross ha- our fingers ha- yes i'm feeling good about today anyway the hate <laughs> the ha- street fair is every summer uh, which is a great multi-day open street fair that's been going on since i think the 70 and then there's what harley strictly bluegrass is another oh big, that's
1: the great big
0: free bluegrass multi-day i mean just amazing lineups usually and free right in the park there
1: yeah, Out- outside
0: lands is another one. Oh, um, I yeah. I think that one you have to buy a ticket for, but
1: Oh, but it's so fun. That's
0: right in that <laughs> neighborhood, yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you it, it's just like um really like so many events and stuff taking place in the park and the whole thing about hate ashbury is the street literally goes right to the very end where the park is yeah and does. so and then the um, panham
0: and then you have this little slender narrow band of, of really nice part of the park of just big old oak trees and stuff runs alongside hey, hey street right and then it ends at the park so it it's just be Yeah. Um, but of course we still have Alembic down the road and then there's um, Amoeba Records too. Oh my
1: then... gosh, we have to talk about the Amoeba <laughs>
0: Records. Because, <laughs> like it.
1: you cannot even be like a kid in our generation in our era oh. and not have spent all just... of the money that you got from <laughs> slinging those hates Damn at amoeba. amoeba records oh <laughs> like, man
0: so... i just spent an afternoon at amoeba just 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 being there is just the best
1: oh man that they've got so many of our Tell so about much amoeba, of our money <laughs> that's yeah. like the greatest right like you literally uh had like that's like home away from home
0: oh absolutely <laughs> i mean just world-class record store right laura
1: Oh, well, you know, and just the most rare finds, right? That's the most fun. Is and the feeling funkiest like you...
0: dudes who work there and just are so knowledgeable <laughs> about everything. You know? It's great street performers, too, still to this day. So, like hey, yeah, I really, you know, hey, if you all are from America, or even if you are, got to see it in your lifetime. Go on by and just bring some flowers in your hair and uh, smile to the people you see. You don't pick up your garbage. Just carry a smile in your heart and you'll fit right in.
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You
0: ever find yourself in a precarious drug-related situation? Facing questions that you know not the answers to. You ever think to yourself, I have nowhere to turn for such answers. Strange questions like... Are these drugs illegal in this country? Or help with simple math equations. Like, now did that scale say micrograms? Or no, 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 no. Did that last acid trip leave you facing big questions about your place in the physical universe, or wondering if your pet hamster really could see the color of your thoughts? Or the beloved classic, Am I too high, man? Am I ever gonna calm one no. One eight three
4: three.
0: I am, I am too high. That's right. Call now for your opportunity to have your questions read on the air by our team of completely unprofessional, not trained, and likely very stoned drug experts. One eight three three. I, three, I am three, too, too, high. too high. Until then, until then put, on put on some good, good music, music relax, 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 and breathe. breathe.
3: Yo, hippie, what you got in there? Fuck you smoking real clean. Oh,
0: yeah, yeah. So don't forget, everybody. We got that special line just for you. You can reach out and touch us and leave us your questions, (laughs) your drug questions, whatever that means to you. And we'll get to it next episode.
3: Unavailable. Take the call uh highness doesn't wait for people to you know get around to answering the telephone uh this is uh fritzy mcgee from maryland or maine or massachusetts i don't remember i need help
0: oh well (laughs) Oh
1: Fritzy. I think he he gave us some good feedback there. I
0: remember Fritz. You remember Fritzy on tour? I remember Fritzy on tour.
1: Yeah. I
0: bought some dynamite acid from
1: Fritzy. (laughs) Well, he doesn't remember where he's from, (laughs) so that might be the challenge.
0: (laughs) I have to agree with you, Fritzy. Highness does not wait for anything really. It kind of occurs when it does, doesn't it? You can chase it. You can try to will it. But you know. It only happens when it chooses you, and sometimes it can be real elusive, but doesn't mean you should stop trying. But I do recommend you remember which state you came from, although not for these purposes, but, you know, driver's license, um, you know, Laura...
1: Yeah, the state of mind. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I think that's where I'm from.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah it, out.
1: Doesn't matter what state you're at, as long yeah. as you're in a good state of mind.
0: Fritzy state of mind. So <laughs> we feel you, Fritzy, and we love you for calling. And, and uh, you know, call back again. And, uh, and anyone else, we look forward to hearing from you. And so we will be back in two weeks. Laura, anything else to say?
1: I think that's so cool. I think we covered it yeah I think we covered, think we
0: covered it. it but we got really we're really excited for the next episode we got we got Sunshine Kezi coming at you from Eugene Oregon and I think we're gonna talk about I don't know maybe families and psychedelics and drugs and you know I think we're still figuring out our discussion Laura but but uh, no, that
1: that's awesome. I love yeah,
0: that. yeah, probably some Oregon Grateful Dead history, but we I, sunshine was so so generous and gave us a full hour and just some really really beautiful insights. so I'm really excited to share with you guys. And then um then we got our mom Mountain girl uh, the following episode. so we're dishing out the kind y'all. So come <laughs> on back in two weeks. We changed our minds all the time
1: That's so awesome. I love everything about that. <laughs>
0: all right yay
1: yay that was sweet so okay. much fun <laughs> all right
0: this is a oh, thing man. dude this is real
1: oh my gosh yes, We
0: have a real as fuck podcast on the internet you know that i
1: i wow
0: we did it
1: i love that you said that that just <laughs> sounds so exciting <laughs> Yeah.
6: Thank mm-hmm.